Black Velvet Fairies is a fantasy supernatural thriller podcast from the makers of The Blair Witch Project and one of the producers of Lord of the Rings. The podcast tells the story of a woman whose grandmother leaves her black velvet paintings of fairies. But not twinkly little sprites. These are grim warriors, kings and queens. As she investigates her family's history with the artwork, disturbing dreams and unexplained encounters pull her toward a dark and dangerous fairy world that some believe is real. Episodes drop on Tuesdays wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Fantasy Fangirls Podcast, where two sisters dive deep into beloved fantasy lore, characters, themes, theories, and more. Before we jump into today's chapters 7 through 12 of Iron Flame, please listen closely to our content warning. Most importantly, we are sharing spoilers for all of Iron Flame. We may be focusing on chapters 7 through 12 today, but we are bringing the whole book into the conversation. That means everything from Iron Flame, Fourth Wing, and anything else that Rebecca Yaros has said it is all on the table here. So if you don't know why Grey Castle is the worst name and we will be eviscerating Cam, I mean, Arik, for it, then please leave, go finish the book, and we will be here when you're done. Next up, this podcast is rated R, folks. We, a fantasy fangirls, are adults who say adult things about an adult book. Zayden Ryerson might want Violet's three little words much more than he wants to fuck her, but that will not stop me from uncontrollably drooling over every single little thing this shadow daddy does in this stretch of chapters. You have been warned. Last thing before we jump into our Iron Flame episode two deep dive. If you love fantasy fangirls, you want to support us in making this dream our livelihood, and you want even more content, more community connection, discounts on merch, early access to episodes, and more, please check out our Patreon. We have two tiers of memberships, Cadets and Dragon Riders. By the way, our Dragon Riders get special voting rights, and they did help me decide on Lexi's Christmas theme for winning our Iron Flame bets. So if you want to join, please check out our link to Patreon, which is in the show notes. And really and truly, thank you for helping us bring these episodes to you. It means the world to us. And now it is time to join Vesgaeth Running Club. Let's begin this episode deep dive with Battle Brief, aka Nicole's summary of what happens in chapters 7 through 12 of Iron Flame. Chapter 7, it's orientation day and there's a new teacher up in here, Professor Grady, professor of the Riders Survival Course. We learned this super sneaky secret course is to teach riders what to do if they get separated from their dragons behind enemy lines, teaching them how to navigate the land, how to work together. Oh, and how to withstand being tortured. Ominous. Rhiannon asks the ever-important question, what happens if we break during interrogation? To which Grady responds, don't. Oh, ah, back in the archives. So peaceful, so wonderful. Violet asks our scribe friend, Jacinia, for a book on Vizcaya's founding and why they chose this location to build the wards. For a defense in history class, of course. Pinocchio, your nose begins to grow. Jacinia agrees with a slight questioning eyebrow raise, but she brings a tome. And thus, we enter scribe super sneaky spy mode. Chapter 8, Conscription Day is here, and our girls, Violet, Nadine, and Rhi are joined by 
fucking Dane at the top of the tower, which is the entrance to the parapet. Their job is simple. Just take the name of the conscript before they go out and possibly die. The new conscripts reach the top where this fearsome foursome is waiting. And after the first candidate falls off the parapet, Violet stops watching and just focuses on her job, specifically noting the aggressive soon-to-be cadets, like this bullish guy that redeems Jack fucking Barlow Jr. I wonder if he'll be important. Anyway, a newbie comes up with startling green eyes. It's Cam! Oh wait, no, it's Arik Greycastle. Did he just make that name up? Welcome to our story, King Tauri's third son. Well, it's time to go back to taking names and double whammy, it's Sloan. Violet goes into mentor mode. Braid your hair, arms out for balance. Don't be a fucking idiot. I mean, Sloan must be just like her brother, funny, kind, lovely. Nope, she hates Violet and blames her for Liam's death. And cue Lexi and Nicole having eggs on our faces. But she makes it across. Go Sloan! I still can't stand you, at least for part one. As the new cadets are being sorted into their squads. Damn, Sloan is in first wing. Oh, but what's that? Dane makes a change and Sloan goes into Violet squad? Stop it, Dane. Stop it with your peace offerings and your stupid things that make me want to actually start liking you. God fucking damn it, Dane forever. Sloan reluctantly, and I mean really reluctantly, joins Violet's squad, which also contains Arik. After some announcements and a surprisingly motivational speech from Aura Beinhaven, who knew that Bizgaith could be a motivational seminar, six dragons join the party, including a one-eyed orange dragon. Cadets absolutely freak the fuck out at the dragons and several break away and Solus totally tortures them and about half of third squad basically anyone who didn't duck which thankfully our core characters all did but not Kieran god fucking damn it Kieran another cadet starts to run away but whose wing beats are those it's Tern Tern comes down and absolutely terrifies the first years and roars loudly Solus is unfazed but retreats looks like Violet just cemented a new enemy in Varish chapter 9 Violet wakes from a nightmare and gets ready for her morning run. But our favorite pink-haired badass decides to join. After all, she's not sleeping either since Russin. Just as they're about to start hitting the pavement, Ree spots her best friend and curiously questions Violet's sanity. But Bodhi tells Ree to get on out of there and Imogen and Violet begin their run. What I would give for Imogen and Violet's running playlist. Later that day in Battle Brief, Devera and Markham tell the students about two recent Griffin attacks. Violet begins to have an existential crisis. What is true? What is not poor scribe Violet. We learn that griffins were found in the armory of the Athbean outpost where they were looking for weapons. A distressed Violet runs to Bodhi after class and begs him for a job. Bodhi is absolutely unmovable. Survive second year, that's your job. Frustrated, Violet goes to her room and continues reading over lunch. Later at assessment day, Ree finally confronts her friend, asking if she's mad over her choosing Sawyer to be her EXO. Violet laughs it off. No, it's definitely not that. Sloane attempts to face off with Violet instead of Arik and absolutely fails. Violet two, Sloane zero, Imogen coming to Violet's defense a thousand. But the bullish first year from the parapet comes up to our second squad asking for Violet Sorengale, Nadine jokingly pretends to be Violet. Funny joke, right? And he snaps her neck. Chapter 10. Oh, shit. Violet begins to fight the assassin and she's really holding her own until he has his hands around her neck. But as he's strangling Violet, she begins to realize two things. One, this whole secrets die with those who keep them. This is a message from Colonel Atos. And number two, his eyes are rimmed red. Eh, 
I'm sure that's nothing to worry about. Violet using her same kidney move she learned from Zayden last year, kills the first year and is covered in his blood. Yummy. But she's in a rough spot. Dane comes up to her and tries to come to her aid. Violet lashes out and screams at him not to touch her. Honestly, fair. Immaterio comes up to Violet, telling her that she's concussed and that she should probably leave. But Violet's like, nah, I'm good. Imogen and Riddick help her back to her space on the mat and Arik and Sloane finally fight. And Sloane sucks. Honestly, good. At the end of the day, yes, she went through her whole day covered in his blood. She walks into her room and our favorite shadow daddy is here, even though he's a day late, but he's here. And he's about ready to commit murder. Violet is bathed and brushing her hair while Zayden is sharpening a weapon in the corner. And they have a calm moment? They can have those? Violet learns about Samara. It's annoying. And she learns that he warded her door. She can bring in whoever she wants so long as they're touching and it's soundproof. Zayden is ready to test those sound wards, but only if Violet is able to give him those three little words. And brilliant fucking woman that Violet is. No way am I telling him that I want him. Sigh. Violet. Zayden calms her anxiety and guilt about not wanting to know the first year's names. You're just a second year. Get ready to lose your humanity. Best guy is taking a major L here. Bodhi shows up and him and Zayden have sneaky secret business to go take care of, but not before Zayden gives Violet a letter and lets her know that his room is warded just for him and her. Swoon! Chapter 11. Violet is still smiling from her shadow daddy's note. Honestly, same. And Violet and Imogen have a friendly but very short conversation about Violet's relationship with Zayden. Short because Imogen is like, I don't want to talk about it mood. Jacinia comes over to Violet and she gives Violet a book, The Gift of the First Six, and she asks for some assistance translating Old Lucerish, a dead language that Violet can read. A scream across the courtyard catches their attention and second year is being dragged away by Professor Markham. That's pretty sus. Jacinia freaks out and admits that she recorded a request from the screaming writer yesterday and it dawns on Violet, again, brilliant fucking woman, that her research project is actually dangerous. Later, Violet walks with her squad and Ree gives them all their mail. Mail time! Shouts you millennials. Violet receives a letter from Mira. She's most definitely not disappointed. But Violet realizes that her letter from Mira is heavily redacted. In the flight field, Varish comes up to Violet, slimy little man that he is. He tells Violet that she needs to have Indarna for tomorrow's flight maneuvers or else. And how ironic it is that her father was studying feather tails and then she bonded one. Violet corrects him. You mean coincidental. Sorry, Vi, I'm with Varish on this one. It's a bird. It's a plane. Nope. It's Dane on Cat's foreleg showing a right Running, landing, but Taryn is adamant. No way in hell are you doing that, Violet. A few nights later, Bodhi is walking Violet to Taryn so that they can travel to Samara. Bodhi is passing information to Violet. Well, kind of coded information. But what's that? Catriona? That doesn't sound like code. Varish interrupts this awkwardness and has his sidekick search her bag. But before sending her on her way, he reminds her that because Andarna didn't show, Violet will be receiving her punishment when she returns. Violet hops on Taryn, who has many much contraband, and the two fly to Samara. Chapter 12. The two arrive at Samara and it's something. Violet gets behind the safety of the wards and she notices that she's the only person in black. After dropping her stuff off in Zayden's very empty room, she searches through their bond and goes to find him. He's beneath her. Yeah, he is. She travels down basically to the dungeons of the fortress and she finds a chamber filled with riders watching two riders in the fighting pits. Of course, one of the fighters is Zayden and yes, he is shirtless. A female rider fills us in. Jarrett has the only one who has a pass for the lieutenants for this weekend and Zayden wants to spend it with Violet and Cunicle becoming unwell. Turns out Violet is too. After straight up 
oogling at him. His eyes shoot to hers. Finish him, she tells him through their bond, using it for the first time since Resson. And boy, oh boy, does he. Zayden wins the pass, but Violet is still drooling over this man. What if we kind of, uh, sort of made out? And he obliges. Nicole melts. Just as Violet is ready to start this bang, bang, bangity bang moment, Zayden pulls them apart. Son of a bitch! He doesn't want to use sex to win her back, so he'll kiss her whenever she wants, and it dawns on this brilliant fucking woman. Oh, he wants me to tell him I love him. I would have already caved. Later, Violet is washed and fed, and their routine is in full swing, her brushing her hair and him tinkering with a weapon. And they are having this beautiful, casual conversation, and it is perfect. But then Violet begins asking wards questions. We learn that the alloy in the hilts of their daggers have many wards imbued in them, and these are the daggers that can kill venom. Oh, and a whole lot about the wards is classified. But enough about the wards. It will have to wait because it's shielding lessons time. And Zayden does not take it easy on her. Love those battle briefs, Nicole. And now that we know everything that happened in chapters 7 through 12, let's tap into our signet power and start diving into key insights, reflections, foreshadowing, and of course, all of our favorites, theories. We have to start talking about RSC or Writer's Survival Course because what the fuck? I want to start off with what are your thoughts about Professor Grady? This is kind of a boring answer. I don't really have strong feelings about him. He's one of those Right, yeah, you know, he's one of those neutral characters, in my opinion. He's not good, he's not bad, he's just kind of there to support the story. He teaches our least favorite class, so part of me wants to hate him for giving them this magic halting serum and things along those lines, like he's right there essentially supervising an interrogation. But I can't fault him for simply teaching this class. You know, this is a class that has been taught, as terrifying as it is, it certainly makes sense for the writers to be taught this class, especially what Basgaith is, right? So I can't can't fault him for simply teaching this class. And he does. He steps into the professor role pretty well with it. That's my neutral feelings about him. I do not have neutral <laughs> feelings about him. I'm going to be honest. I love Professor Grady. And here's why. I love how he's written. I don't know if I love his character. Like, homeboy is sus. And I've got some questions that I'll go into in a second. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. He is so well written, though. And I'm going to give a major shout out to the audiobook narrator. She does an amazing job narrating him. Like, there's just such this, like, happy-go-lucky, almost, like, happy uncle dude moment with him. But he's, like, literally torturing them. And it's so fucked up. I love how just backwards and how much it makes my head hurt. I think of him more as like a professor. He's a guy who's not really a professor. He's like an off the streets professor where this is not what he wanted to really do, but he's really good at what he does. Yeah. What book are you reading? (laughs) (laughs) I did not get that vibe at all from him. I got the vibe of like, he's new. Yeah. And which brings me to my first question. He is new. Who did he replace and why? We have to remember that most of these professors do rotations through Biscayeth. So it's not like, I don't think it's that big of a deal about who he replaced. It's like, it's not a big, it's just like, yeah, like, this is just something that happens at this guy. It's like, a new professor comes in, like, the other one was done with his rotation, and now he's back on the front lines. Like, cut and dry, boom, let's move forward. <laughs> That's how I thought of okay, it. Well, then my second question is probably not going to help in any way, but it's who picked him out? Because at first I was like, oh, did Varish bring him in? But uh, the more I think about it, I don't 
No, because A, Varish was kind of, it seemed at least like kind of a last minute hire. And also because Professor Grady, the only reason that makes me think that they are connected is because Grady is using the serum that it seems like Bezgayeth or at least Atos, Varish, that kind of crew, uh, probably Lilith as well, are crafting in some way. Because this serum, we've talked about this on, we talked about this on episode one, this serum is way, way, way similar to the poison that Violet had right after she got sliced open by the venom in chapter 37 of Fourth Wing. I don't know if he's good or bad. I truly don't know. But like, who picked him out? I think that's a huge coincidence that the year that he just kind of shows up to start being a professor is the same year that they have. This. I really don't take him too serious. Like, I don't mean like, I don't take him. I, se- I just think he is a pretty surface level character, to be honest. <laughs> could not disagree more. I love, okay, so here's my, I can't decide if I absolutely love Professor Grady. Like, he might be up there with feelings for me on, like, how much I love him. I'm serious. Or if I hate him as much as I do, Varish. I truly cannot decide, but I just, I love how he's written. I love how he's narrated. I love Professor Grady. I think I'm going to stay in that camp for a while. Anyway. (laughs) Okay. He replaced Professor Carr for me. He replaced, I have to have one teacher who's like really fucked up that I have to stand behind. And now Professor Carr's off the table. This is the smallest class to walk the hall since the first six. This is from Professor Grady. And wow, oh wow, was that a wake up call. It really was. And now, so remember everyone, 92 writers bonded last year at Threshing. You know, 92 writers there in Violet's class. Remember that there were 101 dragons that were willing to bond last year, but not all of them found worthy writers. Now there are 89 second years in this RSC class. So that means that only two writers who died weren't replaced, which is Liam and Jack. All the other dragons whose writers died after threshing must have rebonded last year and are now part of that 89. Because obviously more than two writers have died since last year's threshing. We know several have fallen off their dragons alone and all sorts of other ways, right? Of course, we know that they died, RIP. And Bade didn't rebond because she was still bonded to Jack or something to that effect. I just thought that was a very interesting little thing there. Everyone, this is another mention of the first six. If you don't already know that the first six are important in the story, you better know now because this is just those neon red signs that we always like to talk about with another mention of the first six. Now, someone in our Instagram DMs made a really good point, and I'm so sorry. I looked for the message. I could not find it to give the person credit. But if there are really seven dragon dens, aka Andarna's dragon line being the seventh, wouldn't it be the first seven, not the first six? So who would the seventh be? I'm assuming it's going to be someone of note. Here are my off-the-cuff thoughts. A Venon, one of the Maven. We know from Violet's dreams that, it, or at least it sounds like it, the higher level Venon, Sage plus level, live a lot longer than humans. Are they fully immortal? We don't know. But another option, it could be a descendant of Naolin. It could also be, and this is the one I'm really leaning towards, a descendant of Violets, specifically from her father's line, or a descendant of Zayden. I don't think it's going to be a descendant of Zayden just because we already kind of have the dragon descendants of Zayden with Sigail and his grandfather and stuff like that. So I'm really leaning towards it being one of Violet's father's predecessors. As much as I especially love the idea that Violet's dad's ancestors are the descendants of Andarna's line, if there were seven, wouldn't there have been mention of them in the journals? Like, I do get it if the seven writer did become a venom, the first six might have erased him or her from their own history. You know, like what happens, what, 200 years later? I don't know. I just, 
I really was under the impression that it is only the first six because the seventh dragon didn't just bear a rider or something to that effect. Like what if that was also a contributing factor to the seventh dragon going quote unquote extinct? That there's something to it with having having a writer and that's why the seventh dragon kind of faded out of memory or something because maybe they weren't willing to bear a writer or something like that. I don't know. To that point, there is also a passage that says that the first six weren't actually the first writers, just the first writers to survive, right? Could that be tied into this maybe? That maybe one of the first writers who did not survive did try to be the seventh den's dragon writer. Anyway, I don't know. Let's keep a close eye on this during the reread about the first six and how that seventh dragon comes into play because I'm just so excited to get into all of that in the second half of this book. You all know me and my dragon stuff. (laughs) Let's continue with dragon stuff. So- Violet says to Taryn, fewer dragons are bonding. And I love that this isn't a question mark. It's a statement. It's a fact. Taryn says back to her, the Empyrean remains divided on whether or not we should get involved. Humans aren't the only ones keeping secrets. So I talked about this in a video on social media, but my friend and I were chatting and she said, what if fewer dragons are bonding because their writers are are still bonded, but their writers are venom. So we know from Jack fucking Barlow that there are way more venom in the wards of Navarre than we originally thought. Now, because they are in the wards, we're assuming that they're the lower level venom, like lower than sage level for sure, because obviously eyes is the biggest tell. But what if this is true? What if the dragons are still bonded and quote like going back to Taryn's original statement humans aren't the only ones keeping secrets that feels very multi-level meaning it could mean that the dragons are keeping secrets about their writers from the other dragons I mean we see this point blank with Bade. I find these lines about the humans keeping secrets interesting because writers can't keep secrets from their dragons. The dragons, they, they literally live in their heads. So it goes to show how much this bond is sacred. Not only are humans keeping secrets from the Empyrean, but these humans' dragons are almost like honor bound to keep their humans' secrets, right? This really makes me wonder about Colonel Atos's dragon. I don't think we know anything about his dragon yet. Now, I would actually honestly think that he's not a writer if it wasn't for his comment in fourth wing about the goggle, you know, the flight goggle tan and referring to his own. I bet you, you know, we don't know what his dragon is. I bet you a hundred dollars that he has an orange. I'll bet you $50 that it's an orange dragon. So, so back to this about how fewer dragons are bonding. I'm under the impression that fewer dragons are bonding because there is increasing frustration among them with the humans and probably with each other as they're so divided here. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I wonder if more marked ones bond during threshing because dragons are seeking to bond with the believers. But how does that translate to the dragons being divided and not bonding? There, there's like a piece of the puzzle that's missing here in this conversation that we just don't quite know yet. There are also theories out there that fewer dragons are bonding because they're not even in the veil. Are they bonding with people in the revolution? There's a lot of people who speculate that maybe the revolution side has their own version of threshing. I don't really believe that because it would have been in Arisha and we learned from the assembly that they are not running their own war college yet. I have to wonder if these other dragons in Arisha, however, are some of these dragons who aren't willing to bond at Vizgaeth. That really stood out to me and we talked a lot about that last episode about where are all these other dragons coming from? There's a huge thing where it's like, whoa, a lot of dragons are actually in Arisha. I bet that they 
they didn't return to Beskaith after the big rebellion. Maybe their writers died at during the rebellion, and they chose just not to return to Besgaeth. Or similarly, their writers did not return to Besgaeth, and they are presumed dead, and that's why, obviously, there's fewer dragons. Last thing I have to mention in this RSC scene. Seriously, what do they do with bonded writers who don't pass? They kill them. I, what? Like, do they, obviously <laughs> right yes but like do they get targeted for assassinations or like accidental deaths or are they i like literally they'll be an interrogation they'll break and they'll kill him that's what i gathered and, and that's why professor grady is just like yeah like just don't break like or you will yeah. be killed in interrogation I, exactly I, because here's the deal if you break an interrogation in class where they're of quote unquote major air quotes going easy on you <laughs> Then what's going to stop you from breaking out in the real world if you get caught by poor Emil, you know, Griffin Wright or Griffin Flyers? Yeah, I took that immediately as you die. Like, but it's best guy. Of course, that's what they do. Yes. Like, uh, obviously, like my two options with, you know, being a targeted assassination or you're just killed during interrogation, like you die. But again, like these bonded writers, like their dragons have to be a little bit pissed off. Like, what the heck is going on in the veil? Like, did, what happened when Solus returns to the veil after torching a bunch of bonded writers in Third Squad? Like, no wonder this motherfucker doesn't have one eye. <laughs> Well, hold on. I'm going to get to that later. I have a theory around what happened there. You're right. We, I'm jumping the gun here a little bit. <laughs> anyway, last thing I'll say here about this big ominous question about what do they do with the bonded writers who don't pass? I love how they look to Violet for the answer. And she's like, I don't have a fucking clue. Like, don't look at me. I, I don't know, have right? any answers anymore. <laughs> Poor Violet. Her whole world is just flipped up. I really feel for Violet in this book. She's getting a lot of hate. You and I are big Violet defenders in this book because everything we that she is are. feeling is so fucking deserved. Yes. All right. Now let's move on to the archives. Ah, oh, it's so nice and peaceful in here, sort of, kind of. The revolution might not have a scribe in its ranks, but hey, it does have Violet. I love her reflections on who she is versus who she used to be whenever she's in the archives. That happened a lot in Fourth Wing as well, and I love how that's just continued on here and really magnified in Iron Flame. She doesn't miss the woman she was, even if she misses the quiet and simplicity of life. You know, it made me think about this, and while it is a totally different situation, I I can personally relate to this now as a mom. I do. I miss my pre-kid life, but I might be in the minority here where I don't really miss pre-kid Lexi because I have found my identity in motherhood in a way that I never had an identity before. And, and certainly I do have my identity outside of motherhood, but I've really like come into my own here. And I see that a lot in Violet here as well with this phrasing. And I just, I, I personally could really relate. And I know so many others can as well. We were just talking about this, Nicole, but again, it, it's always coming up in this book. When Violet is in the archives, it once again, showcases how much her world has turned upside down. As she comes to grips with not being able to trust this education, she felt so secure and strong in. Quote, the one who believed everything she read with unfailing confidence as if the simple act of writing something on a blank page made it gospel. I just... Ah, she's just really struggling and I feel for her so much in this. You know who else is struggling? Fucking Nasia. Nasia, how is this guy allowed on guard duty? I truly do not understand. He is always sleeping whenever he's mentioned. And I don't know a whole lot about the military, but I do know that if you're sleeping on guard duty, that's not a good look. And you would not be asked back to do that job again and again. Like, how are they skating by, especially given how secretive this place is? I just thought that was so funny. Nasia, my guy, I need you to be better at your job. <laughs> Actually, I don't because it does make it easier for our crew to like sneak in, especially later on when they do their archives heist. But this is unforgivable and ridiculous. 
I can't even believe it. So I do have a question, though. We we talked to Jacinia, and she has this moment where she says, I heard about dot, 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 her face falls. I'm sorry. He was always really nice to me. She's obviously talking. Liam! In our fourth wing deep dive, Lex, you and I were capital C convinced that Liam and Jacinia at the bare minimum had a night together and were starting something. He was always flirting with her. He asked Violet what are scribes into. His cheeks heated when Violet asked him at formation for war games if he had a good night and he was like buttoning his jacket up. I'm choosing to believe and I this is my entire headcanon that him and Jacinia had this passionate one night love story and it just absolutely guts me in my entirety. I'm right there with you. When I first read this, I was like, oh no, like I, my shoulders just sagged and was like, oh, I really thought that they had something there. Like I thought this was going to be like a whole thing about how Jacenia found out and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, we don't know that. Maybe it still is true. And she's just like, you know, really good at masking her emotions. Well, she is a scribe. That is true. I don't get me wrong though. I can absolutely get behind her and Sawyer. Like I, like oh, that's yeah. a really great match as well. But this part did make me just a little bit sad. <laughs> Someone on our Instagram story Q&A a few, it was like a few weeks ago, said, quote, Jacinia shouldn't be allowed to date anyone with her streak of Sawyer and Liam. And I spat out my water when I read this and laughed for like 10 fucking minutes. It was absolutely brilliant. I also love, this is such a small note, but last thing on the archives, I love that Violet's first official lie is in the archives. Like how fucking poetic. This place that has been lying to her her whole life is where she drops her first official lie to Jacinia. So good. Conscription Day. It is so cool getting to see Conscription Day from the view of a second year. There's this one line from Nadine, quote, you'd have thought your mother would have held off the storm last year considering you were crossing. In Violet's inner monologue, quote, she wouldn't have called off the storm to kill me like a coward, but she sure as hell wouldn't have stopped it to save me either, unquote. What is this a little nod to us readers who were like freaking out over the storm and thinking it was Lilith? I know I was very much in the camp of being like, oh my God, Lilith sent the storm, Matt, and telling us that it wasn't. Or is this just another moment where Violet doesn't know her mother's actions? Based off of what we learn in Iron Flame, we know that she did not want Violet to die in the writer's quadrant. She literally cashed in a deal with Zayden to make sure that she survived. But did she send the storm because she knew Violet, it calmed Violet? and it would like fuck off others who were soon to be cadets like Jack it like I mean I don't think it's it's confirmed but I would highly assume would it be like if that storm wasn't there Jack would have caught up to her I don't know or is this just Rebecca Yarrow shutting down that theory so I'm gonna get up on my high horse here a little bit because I was one of the few one of the very few who thought the storm was a coincidence partly because no one in our story linked it to her mom not Violet not Mira not anyone even though everyone knew that her mom's signet was, you know, wielding storms. And yet there's a big storm going on and nobody even thought to connect the dots. And so I definitely read this part right here as semi-confirmation that her mom was not involved in the storm last year. And maybe I might be a little bit biased towards that because that would mean that I was right. And I only have so many things that I was right about with this book. So I'm going to cling on to what I was for dear life here. I do definitely think that Violet's right here. Her mom did not call off the storm for her because she wouldn't do that. She had faith her daughter would cross. And if she didn't, then, well, she didn't deserve to be a writer. Lilith is a very complicated character that a lot of us have a hard time wrapping our heads around because she wouldn't call off a storm to protect her daughter, which would be an easy, pretty effortless thing for her to do, but she will sacrifice herself to save her children. 
Why? My best guess is that she really believes in the system and nurtures this best survivor die culture. Zayden does keep her safe unless it's a normal writer's quadrant death, like the parapet, for instance, or threshing. The fact that more cadets die on the sunny skies parapet day is kind of nerve wracking. Are there more aggressive first years killing each other, like pushing them off the parapet? Or is this just simply a coincidence? I, it just that line really stood out to me and it felt very strange because there were a lot of constructs who died during Violet's year. She said that it was actually more so than usual. So does this mean that there are maybe just more conscripts in general and therefore the numbers just mean that more people died? Or is there some other outlier here that is affecting why more people died this year? Well, another option is with the storm, maybe people were being more careful. And then when it was a sunny skies, people were like, do, 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 and then slipped off and fell. Or maybe because it's a volunteer basis and people, it was like a really bad rainy day. It's like, you know what? Maybe I will go be an infantry soldier to like, you know, survive. <laughs> That's probably what I would have done, honestly. <laughs> I wouldn't have. I would have been like, I can do it. (laughs) When we're on this top of the tower, we get this fearsome foursome of Rhee, Dane, Nadine, and Violet. And this banter and just like absolutely eviscerating Dane is perfection. Rhee calling out Dane left and right is just delicious. Literally, she's like, don't even dare ask me to call you wing leader because Ryerson didn't need me to pet his ego that way. It's just like, I love Rhee and how much she just eviscerates him. Dane is just one of those people who loves rules for rules sake. He's the Percy Weasley in our story here. And then I just, ah, I have to call this line out because God fucking damn it, Dane, the asshole gets Liam and Soleil killed and is promoted as a reward. I just, I love the Dane hate that Violet feels and the first, you know, up until chapter 35, halfway through, right? (laughs) Well, speaking of Dane hate, I'm not done hating Dane because did Dane lie? Possibly, maybe. I want to bring this to the table and I have us debate it. So Rhee asks Dane if he knows the new vice commandant. And Dane says, quote, Varish, nothing besides the fact that he's a complete hard ass who thinks the quadrant has gone soft in the years since he graduated, unquote. His dad and Varish are friends. We can get this confirmed by Dane later on in this conversation. But we also later learn that Varish has stepped in as a mentor role for Dane and his signet. So did he get this mentorship with Varish after the start of the school year or was it going in prior. I hadn't even thought about that. So I think that's a really cool thing that you picked up on. Varish was at Samara last year. So you're right. I do think that he is a new mentor here for Dane. But I really hope that Dane's lying in some way just because God fucking damn it, Dane. I'm going to go a little bit deeper. So in the last episode, you and I were talking about Varish and he was anointed before Zayden Violet and the Russin crew returned. But Maybe he was brought in because, you know, Atos and him are really good friends. So maybe Atos brought him in specifically to be Dane's mentor in his signet, which is pretty fucked up. And I don't think Atos would have told Dane, but I want to believe that he did. And Dane is just lying here. And this is the reason, you know, God fucking damn it, Dane's dad and God fucking damn it, Dane will forever live rent free in my head, at least until we get to chapter 35. I will find every instance in this book to not believe Dane because there's a part of me that really does not think he is telling the truth and that he is lying. But I think that's just truly wishful thinking. I'm going to be straight up on it. Yeah, we're going to have a lot to process through, but thankfully, 
we're not here yet. No. So <laughs> let's talk about book math instead. So Lexi, you have a sorting hat ceremony timeline that you worked out for Harry Potter. But I wanted to take this into fourth wing slash iron flame. And I had the question as I was reading this chapter, how long would conscription day take for them to cross the parapet? Not even just like get up the staircase. I'm talking just cross the parapet. Here's the layout. They step up to give Re their name. Then they walk across the parapet, but it's only when they're about a third of their way across that Dane will even let the next one step up onto the parapet. So let's say the parapet takes about five-ish minutes to cross on a sunny day. Let's say it's about 1.5 minutes to get your name down and then to step up onto the parapet. That's about six and a half minutes per conscript total, but Dane waits for them to get only a third of the way across. So that's about a minute and 36 seconds if we're looking at that five minute timeline to get across the parapet. So that is two minutes and six seconds per person total. Violet's year was roughly 298 conscripts that crossed the parapet and 67 died and three were torched on conscription day. So that's 368 people times 2.1 aka two minutes and six seconds. If six seconds was a decibel it'd be 0.1. I did the math people trust me that is 758.1 now that is the time total in minutes so if we divide that by 60 Lexi do you know how long that is a really long time that is 12 hours and 53 minutes now some will not make it fully across some will make it faster than others so I'm gonna plus or minus I'm gonna be very generous and plus or minus this about an hour and a half but still in the best case scenario this is 11 and a half hours imagine being the last person to cross woof that does not even include also them climbing the staircase and also them being sorted into their quadrants. That is a long day. That is a very long day. And you want to know what else? You cannot mention my sorting ceremony map and me not get into this. So without further ado, folks, this is what you hid from me in the outline. This is what I hid from you. Welcome, friends, to today's mini episode of The Room of Inquire It, where we will dive into how long the sorting hat ceremony takes. <laughs> All right. So I wondered how long the sorting ceremony at Hogwarts really does take every year. When you realize how many students there are in each year and the amount of time the sorting hat can take to sort each of them, you all, it's a long time here. So when you realize how many students are in each year and the amount of time the sorting hat takes to sort each of them, it's a really long time. So it is confirmed that there are about 600 students at Hogwarts, which means there's approximately 85 students in each of the one through seven years. Stop laughing, Nicole. (laughs) (laughs) But from early book notes, we have the original 40 students in Harry's year, some of which never appeared in the books, but the author always knew that they were there. So in Harry's year, there were actually only 40, which there are a lot of dark reasons why that might be. We're going to go with there are 40 students at minimum in Harry's year. So now that we have a different number from the original 85 students per year, I'm just going to go here with the 40 students. Even if there are only 40 students in Harry's year, the sorting hat can take up to several minutes deciding which house each first year goes into. If it's more than five minutes, it's considered a hat stall, but that's very, very rare here. So let's just average a minute for each sorting, plus 30 seconds for walking to and from the sorting hat stool. That is like bare minimum here, one minute and 30 seconds, divided by 40 students equals 60 minutes, aka one hour. So at the absolute minimum, the shortest possible ceremony is one hour. But 
let's say that there are indeed 85 students. 85 times 1.5 equals 128 minutes, which equals out to two hours and eight minutes. So in conclusion, it takes between one and over two hours for the sorting hat ceremony, which really makes me wonder what time the feast ends. I also did that math, but I'm not going to go into that here today because Nicole will kill me. All right. Thank you, folks. Now back to Iron Flame. Can you just imagine Fred and George <laughs> and their stomachs just like rumbling and what they would do to get food? Like I, what I would give for that point of view, I would do so much. Back to Biscayeth. Watching these constructs cross the parapet, oh, it makes my heart hurt. There is no transition from a sorting ceremony method to this. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. We're going on quite the emotional ride here today. Quote, risking their lives trying to become dot, 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 us. Violet's sizing them up. She's immediately able to point out their strengths and their weaknesses and how that's going to help them or hurt them going across the parapet. It reminds me a little bit of Zayden's POV chapter nine when he takes Violet to the mat for the first time. It shows just how much she has learned this past year from her experience and skill. So I'm back to hating Dane. So this might be a bit of a stretch. Rhiannon and Vi are watching the new recruits cross the parapet and they see this guy, this bullish first year, throw someone else off the parapet. This is also the assassin that we will get later in this episode. Rhiannon calls him Jack Barlow Jr. and Dane flinches and looks towards Violet. Now this could be Dane flinching because he's remembering what this kid tried to do to Violet last year, his best friend that he sent to die in Athbeen. Or, and here's where I'm getting on my theory train, or he knows what's happening with Nolan and Jack fucking Barlow, and that's why he flinches. He knows that Jack is alive, and he knows that he's under some kind of like secret top security clearance or whatever. And Ree saying Jack Barlow Jr., him flinching is him being like, oh God, they don't know that Jack's still alive. I did not think of it like that, but you know what? What do I know anything about Jack fucking Barlow at this point? Like, I am traumatized to even theorize around him anymore because I was so wrong. <laughs> you and I were both wrong. I maybe didn't do a five minute rant about that theory, but you know what? We, I was very much on the same camp as you. So We also later get confirmation that this Jack fucking Barlow Jr. is the first year assassin out for Violet on assessment day. So you're asking that about Dane. I'm here asking, did leadership see how ruthless and power hungry he is on the parapet? And by no coincidence at all, that's how he's now a Venon? Or was he already a Venon here and they figure that out after he's crossed the parapet? Well, you know, we'll get to more of these questions in a little while, but my guess is that he is not yet a Venon and he becomes a Venon between now and assessment day. The reasons how and why we'll get into in a little bit, but that's my thought. We were tagged in an incredible theory video on TikTok and I cannot wait to get into it later. But for now, I want to talk about Ark and Sloan. After getting the Today Show excerpt of Iron Flame, Way back in like September, I think that was our second episode we ever did. We knew of someone named Arik. Did I have on my bingo card that Arik was going to be A, King Tauri's son, and B, someone who immediately stole my heart? I did not have that on my bingo card. And yet here we are. I love Arik. When I first read that, it was like, <gasps> I, I loved it. It was such a great little plot twist. And I just, I loved it so much. There is so much emphasis on his brothers too. And I have to wonder how many brothers does Arik have? He has his older brother who is the king's heir and he knows about the venom, but chooses to follow in their father's footsteps and not do anything about it. Then we have a second oldest brother who Zayden killed during threshing. And then we have Arik. 
But the way of the writing, it really makes me wonder how many other brothers he has. Like, I don't think he has just one surviving brother anymore, the way that there's so much emphasis on multiple brothers. So I wonder if other younger brothers are going to play a role here in our story later on. I wonder how many of the brothers we're going to meet. And I hope it's numerous. I can't wait to meet brother number one. I can't wait for us to talk more about Arik. I truly believe that he's going to become a very prominent character in the rest of the series. I definitely think he's going to eventually become king, which by the way, props to Ray for being just so cool about the king's son ending up in her squad. And it's like all a big secret. And she's like hardly blinks at the information. Like, good for you, girl. <laughs> also, can we talk about how Arik's name literally means rule with mercy or in Old Norse, it means ever or eternal ruler. Yeah, yeah he's totally going to be that's king. That's pretty yeah. accurate. Yeah, yeah. there you go, right there. <laughs> they also mention later on that there's never been a writer king before and just like how fucking perfect would that be? Yes. There's a moment, quote, Dane shakes his head and looks at me like I have the answers for any of this when he's the fucking wing leader. I love this line because back in fourth wing in our deep dives, we tore Dane a new asshole for being just absolutely incompetent at his job sometimes. But I love this line, quote, he sits muttering something about losing every fight today. I just like to think about if Dane was Zayden, like if Zayden was in Dane's shoes right now how he would feel or how he would act being treated this way by two second years and just being knocked down a peg that would be delicious I would love that so much in addition to absolutely not expecting King Towery's son to be in the writer's quadrant let alone just like shoved in our faces like Arik was I did not expect to hate Sloan for most of this book but I do have a question and that is who told Sloan about Liam How did she know? So after I read this excerpt that Rebecca posted to social right before the book came out, I wondered if the place that she was fostered was secretly supportive of the revolution. So she found out from their secret network. However, after we learned she can't fight for shit and she wasn't trained to survive the writer's quadrant, that can't be the case because it's likely she was set up to fail or they very specifically did not train her for the writer's quadrant knowing she was going to be going in there. I do believe that it was someone from the Resin fighter crew like Imogen or Bodhi or one of the others They could have written to her or found her when she arrived for conscription day to tell her about what happened. People were arriving the day before. So maybe someone found her that evening before the day of. I Actually, you know what? I don't believe it was Imogen. Not with the way Sloane is surprised Imogen is siding with Violet and defending her. But we do actually know that Imogen wrote to Sloane last year back when she was on the Let's Kill Violet train. Which brings me back to maybe Bodhi, who we know has a bit of a big mouth that is not so eloquent with words. And maybe that's why it came off so bad to Sloane. It's an accident. We know that Bodhi, but... You're not always the best at communication. But you know what? I'm actually going to go with it was fucking Kieran, and he spun this whole story to make Violet the bad guy. Just kidding. I'm really not. Oh, I, I, I have this so irrational. I on board with this. I was like, God fucking damn it, Kieran. I just got to get my irrational Kieran hate out before he's torched in a few minutes. <laughs> got to squeeze it all in beforehand. Whatever the answer is, I don't think we're ever going to find out. This is one of those little plot blimps that we're just going to have to accept and move on as curious as we all are about the how and the when the truth was communicated to Sloan. Speaking of Sloane, we had multiple videos around Sloane theorizing that she was going to be death, go viral, and so much so that when Sloane came up in the uh, the Rebecca Yaros reading that you're talking about, I thought Rebecca was wrong for a second. Like, I'm so sorry. Rebecca is, she is the voice of God in this world, so I have obviously corrected that. But like, I was so convinced that Sloane was going to be deaf, and that was why Liam could sign so well. However, I love it so much more that like, 
99% of our characters can just sign and that's part of their education. It makes me so happy to see sign language so normalized and that is coming from someone who literally can barely sign more than five words. But I just, I love seeing that. Again, it's that representation without it being shoved down our throat. But I love later with Sawyer and learning how to sign and him and Riddick's joking around about it. We'll get to that, but that's like one of my favorite parts of the book. I love that too. All right, back to some math here, everybody. Don't worry, we're not going to go through everything. We're going to stay at Biscayeth here. As fun as it is to go to Hogwarts, which by the way, Nicole and I will be going to in the near future. Stay tuned. 71 candidates fall from the parapet, which is four more than Violet's year. We already kind of touched on this, but I'm going to bring it back. Her year still had a pretty high fall rate because of the storm. Again, it makes me wonder why did so many people fall when the signs pointed to that not supposed to be the case? The first year assassins that made it their mission to push as many people off. Leadership knows fewer dragons are willing to bond, so they want there to be fewer people able to bond. Maybe it's simply more people crossing it. So that 15% is naturally going to be a higher number. I know I already mentioned that as well there. Or there's just no hidden meaning. And it's another illustration about how devastatingly hardcore trying for the writer's quadrant really is. I'm leaning towards the latter, but I love the first two. <laughs> like, I love that being the idea. So let's move into the conscription day formation or like putting them in formation for lack of a better term. What were your thoughts when Dane switched Sloan to fourth wing? This was without our knowledge of chapter 36 and beyond. That it was a very pathetic, half-hearted <laughs> attempt at a peace offering. I knew it couldn't be a bad guy move, for lack of a better term there, because of the way that Varish gives him this reproachful stare. So Varish knows that this is Liam's sister. Varish knows how Liam died. And Varish knows why Sloan is being moved into fourth wing. So he is not happy about this, which makes me think that this was Dane kind of acting, acting on his own here. And I do think that it was his version of a peace offering for Violet there. I think my exact text to you, was that Dane giving a dot, 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 peace offering? <laughs> like, I was disgusted. <laughs> I was absolutely disgusted. <laughs> it's a priming for us as readers to be like, oh, shit, we should have a that 99% of us hating Dane. We need to have that 1% open. And I hate to admit it, but it worked. <laughs> it really worked. I did have that 1%. I'd even go into 2% open after I saw Dane do this. Stupid Dane making me like him. So we had some people reach out to us in confusion over this line. And I'm not going to lie, I'm confused as well. Quote, I breathe deeply as six dragons, five belonging to the wing leaders, and a one-eyed orange dagger tail I don't recognize. Five? For the wing leaders? At first, I was like, oh, this is the wing leaders and the executive officer. However, in the very beginning of Iron Flame, there's this awesome illustration of how the quadrant works. Which, by the way, none of you need because I broke it all down in our very first episode of Fourth Wing. It's true, you did. <laughs> but looking at that, there's an executive officer for each wing. So then it would be eight people. So wh where's the fifth? I've been wondering this too. And I spent way too much time trying to figure it out. I thought maybe it was Aura's dragon because she's the senior wing leader. Although I do take her as second wing's wing leader and she's simply like the senior wing leader among the four. So I don't have an answer for you at all. I don't know where this fifth wing leader is coming from. Again, I referred to our great illustrations. I went back to my old notes. I read all these other chapters. I was looking at keywords of other people. I don't know everybody. I don't know. So <laughs> the only other thing I could think of it was is it was just a typo and it was supposed to be Panchex. But is Panchex a dragon rider? 
I can't remember. I would assume so because I don't think he's a scribe. I can't imagine the commandant of the dry uh, the dragon writer. No, quadrant. he would be. Yeah, he absolutely would be. So, so maybe it is, but again, that's really weird language there. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We're just as stumped as you are, all people. So let's go into some actual theorizing that might make more sense, and that is why does cat's breath smell? <laughs> When we did our Today Show excerpt deep dive that I mentioned earlier, Kath's breath really stood out to both of us, but specifically Lexi and her dragon high horse. (laughs) So apparently it was right to. Lucy's library on TikTok has this epic theory. So in land navigation, Bade's breath, when when Bade is attacking our crew, was described as, quote, a dank huff of steam. Varish's dragon later is described as Fetid, which I had to Google because I'd never heard that word before. And it's basically just like putrid. Wyvern in the last battle, however, are described as having rotten teeth. These are the only winged creatures that have these descriptions about their breath. So back to Lucy's theory. So she spouted a few different versions of what this could mean. One, when a rider turns venom, the bond with their dragon starts to decay. You might be thinking, what about Dane? More on that in a second. The second option is when a rider turns venom, something happens internally with their dragon. She also mentioned when a rider has association with these dark wielders, so not necessarily necessarily that they are venom themselves, but they're doing something with the dark wielders that could also affect their dragon and thus their breath. But what would this mean for Dane? Because I really don't think Dane is a venom. I do not see that happening in the slightest. However, even Lucy mentions the fact that Zayden reads Dane's intentions and homeboy was absolutely 100% game to move over to the revolution. Does not really seem like venom behavior. She does mention, however, that it could be not necessarily venom, But like I mentioned a second ago, the association with dark wielders. Now he could be lying and be in absolute mega spy mode. Like I'm going to try to convince myself for the first (laughs) half of this book, at least to be quite honest, I'm not entirely against this. I could totally see Rebecca Yaros throwing us for the absolute wildest roller coaster when it comes to Dane as a character. He has an incredibly powerful mind signet. I would assume that his mental stuff is on lock, meaning he can easily throw intentions out and put like, oh, I'm game to go to the revolution. And Zayden would read that as, oh, yeah, those are Dane's intentions. Well, and then there's also in part two, there's a lot of emphasis on, well, Kath is vouching for Dane. What if Dane has some kind of influence on Kath? I have a lot of complicated feelings. I kind of hope that this is actually the case, that Dane is like secretly like a really bad guy who's in ultra spy mode here, because then we can all jump back on our God fucking damn it Dane train and life will be peaceful and wonderful again and we won't have all these complicated emotions. I have no idea what to believe here, but I don't think that the dragons having putrid breath is Rebecca doesn't write anything on accident and having those connections between those three dragons and it's not like they're all three orange dragons because Dane's dragon is a red dagger tail so it's not an orange dragon thing and also whenever Violet is describing other dragons like Huff of Steam it's always described as sulfur which I don't know about you Lex that's not my favorite smell in the entire world but I do feel like it would be described as like putrid or fetid or so on and so forth well and sulfur makes absolute sense because dragons breathe fire so that's just a smell that the dragons, they're not going to have great smelling breath anyway, but it is a very distinctive 
extra bad smell versus just the usual smell that dragons have. Well, and Rebecca goes a little step further here when she says, like, I wonder if, you know, Kath has some, like, bone or something decaying. Like, you know, Dane needs to check his breath. Now, Lucy did say, what if, God fucking damn it, Dane's dad, or even Varish, is turning Dane venom unknowingly? I don't think that's possible considering you have to channel from the source. But maybe they're doing some kind of influence on Dane. But also, I don't know, because his signet is so powerful. They would want to control him. But I mean, they're also, there is no cure. There is only control. So maybe they are trying to control him in a dark magic wielding kind of way. I don't know. I have no idea what to believe here. I do not believe that Dane is a venom knowingly. I do like the idea that Varish and God fucking damn it Dane's dad were doing something to Dane to like turn him evil and like turn him into this mega spy. So when he does go to Erasia, he's like working absolutely undercover. Do I think that's real? I don't know. I think that's truly just wishful thinking on my end. But this is definitely something we are looking out for. And I also want to point out this other relevant line. And Darna can smell quote unquote stolen magic in the caves. And that's when Solus appears. Was Indarna smelling venom stolen magic from Solus, and that's why his breath smelled bad? It's it's really interesting how that's a a smell that she could pick up on. Also, Jack seemed able to control Bade. Could Dane, like I just mentioned, be controlling Kath to vouch for him, and he's the ultimate undercover venom? Again, I don't think that's right, but like, I don't see Dane as a venom at all. But again, Kath's breath can't be an accident here. Last thing I'll note here, who have we become extensively analyzing and going down like insane TikTok rabbit holes of the meaning behind dragon bad breath? Talk about not on your bingo card. (laughs) I would never have it any other way. I love it so much. (laughs) Nicole, you edited this out in our bonus episode excerpt, so I'm going to say it again here and you better not take it out this time. Watch me. (laughs) Where are these runners attempting to go? Where do they plan to escape? I get it. They're terrified seeing dragons, but what did they expect like they they specifically went into the writer's quadrant to become dragon riders and then they see a dragon or multiple dragons i get it it's scary and then they just run away like they're running back towards the parapet what is their plan just to cross it again and say nope never mind put me in the infantry like it just seems so silly anyway i'm so hung up on why on earth i would have edited that out (laughs) of the episode i'm so sorry i feel like such an ass now everyone's wondering what else you edit out (gasps) oh I have all of the power as the editor of this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> never, never cross me. Now, of course, we have to talk about, do we feel confident that Solus torched half of Third Squad because he was trying to get the rest and crew? Yes. Yes, I think so too. <laughs> I do believe that is the answer, but it is also his and Varish's way of showing everyone who's boss. Yes. This is how they establish themselves as a the power figure to tighten the ship around here at the Riders Quadrant. And the opportunity to kill off some of the Russian crew was there, so he absolutely took it. Which as much as I give him shit, R.I.P. Kieran, we never got the chance to properly hate you. And the door closes on <laughs> Kieran. <laughs> I think we've mentioned him in every single Iron Blade episode, even our predictions, our review, episode one and episode two. This guy has like one line. It's part of the fun. Just like I love irrationally hating characters. I feel very Jennifer L. Arbentrout with that. It makes me so happy. Okay, so I teased this earlier, but it is time to talk about it. Why does Tarn hate Soulless. If you were like me, you heard Taryn, or heard if you were listening to the audiobook or reading, that Taryn absolutely 
hates Solus and is absolutely terrified when he learns that he's there. So why does he hate him so much that he quite literally took an eye out? I was in the shower one day listening to this part of the audiobook, and I had a theory drop into my head. We know that Varish killed multiple people in interrogation, so we can assume that his interrogation tactics are horrific too. Obviously, they lead to death, and I don't assume it's immediate. We also learn from Lieutenant Colonel Nolan's missive to Lilith that they have been testing on Venom for a long time. Now, quick pause. We were told on social media after posting the Lieutenant Colonel Nolan video that sometimes when you are addressing a Lieutenant Colonel informally, you just say Colonel Nolan. However, Rebecca is very intentional about every time lieutenant colonel is used possibly it, she does come from a military background her husband is in the military so it could be that informality I'm choosing to believe not because she does not do a lot of things like that that would confuse us readers so again we know from the missive in chapter 65 that lieutenant colonel Nolan is writing to Lilith Sorengale about there is no cure there is only control we know that in our timeline Nolan is a colonel not a lieutenant colonel so that missive is from the past back to Taryn what if after the Battle of Erasia, leadership saw Naolin, Taryn's previous writer, start channeling from the source and thus turning Venon. Now, this would mean that they would see him resurrecting Brennan, so there's a little plot hole in this theory. But back to this. They then captured Naolin and started interrogating him, trying to learn how he did it. Obviously, there is no cure. There's only control. They're trying to learn as much as they can about the Venon, I'm assuming, from Venon themselves. Also, there's that one Venon passage that's like, no maven has ever been captured, meaning the other three types of venom have been captured. So they capture Naolin, they interrogate him. Taryn was so incredibly pissed that they t- captured and interrogated his writer that, and by the way, I'm assuming this is Varish interrogating his writer, that Taryn lashed out on Solus, thus taking an eye out. Now, here's where my theory maybe gets a little unhinged. Naolin somehow gets away and... <laughs> And went further down the line of the Venom path. Thus, Taryn had to break the bond with him eventually. This was my shower thought one day. And that is how Taryn took his eye out. (laughs) It would make sense that Naolin does get captured. Now, again, the big plot hole here is that leadership would then see him literally resurrecting Brennan. Now, maybe Brennan didn't get resurrected right away. They took Brennan away to the cave and that's when he got fully resurrected. So I don't know, but it was fun to think about. I think that's a fun theory. (laughs) (laughs) What do you know? You thought Jack fucking Barlow was dead. (laughs) That's true. What do I know? (laughs) Now, with Solus and Varish dead by the end of this book, I wonder if we'll ever get Taryn and Solus's history. I really hope so. Give me all of the dragon drama right now. I think that Taryn knows when he tells Violet to have eyes on Solus earlier in this stretch here that Solus is about to burn them. I wonder if, like, does Taryn know this from the way that dragons communicate or just because he knows Solus so well? I think that it is the latter there, that he just knows Solus so well. He knows the significance of this whole situation here. I want to know what the dragon drama is. I just told you what the dragon drama is. I don't know why you know. <laughs> You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> When Taryn is pissed off, he says, quote, you do not have the right to burn what is mine. This line really stood out to me. So who is Taryn talking about here? Surely not the girl with the blackish blue hair who's about to run here, right? He says, 
No, right. He is saying it to Solas, but the right to burn what is mine. Is he talking about what is mine is something else for him to burn? Or is Taryn talking about Violet being his and oh. Solas has no right to burn her because Taryn knows that Violet's one of Solas's targets here and he knows that Solas is targeting Violet, essentially. Door number two. 100% yeah. door number two. I don't think he's like, I have a lash up against this girl with the bluish black hair. I need to kill her for snack reasons. But again, that does bring back to Solus is very specifically targeting. And I bet you that Taryn knows that his writer is very much in danger right now. Taryn is absolutely playing chess and everyone else is playing checkers, 100%. Or he's just playing like smash the hammer kind of thing. <laughs> I, I'll wrap this up. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. No wonder Solus doesn't have an eye. He just burned a bunch of bonded writers who have some very pissed off dragons right now. Solus is an idiot. <laughs> Hot take. Solus is an idiot. But again, I think that goes back to he is, I don't know if being controlled by Varish is the right way, but he is being influenced by Varish in a way that a lot of writers don't have that kind of influence over their dragons. And I think that is very significant to them being orange dragons. And I think that is also significant to the type of person that they are. You know, Jack is very similar as well with his control of Bade. And there is no coincidence between these these characteristics and these oranges that they're bonding with. We will get into Varish's Venon in just a moment. But first, let's talk about Bezgaia's running club. I love this development. We just learn how much is on Violet's shoulders in such a seemingly surface level scene. Obviously it's not because you get the quote, I won't make it. The fact that she says this in, I'm not going to say an offhanded way, but almost in a matter of fact like it, it slips out way it just shows you how much this is plaguing her thoughts this is not something she thinks and is like the deepest darkest secret this is something that is constantly on her mind and stressing her out day to day there's also this line quote the gravel is shit for traction making it harder but that's fine I need harder my heart just breaks for Violet and how much stress and pressure she feels like she's under and she doesn't feel like she can help. Obviously, she does her, you know, undercover scribeness, which is her way of helping, but the fact that she feels so useless is just heartbreaking. But this Imogen budding friendship is wonderful. Right after Violet says, I'm not fast enough, Imogen says, quote, we're not fast enough yet. And we're is in italics, really emphasizing that. Not for my normal oh, no. italics. What does but that mean? <laughs> no, not for my normal italics high horse. But for this case right here, it's really her emphasizing we are a team. And I just love that. In the start of chapter nine, Violet is also waking up from a dream. We're not going to do the dream deep dive yet. We're going to do that when we actually are in a dream with Violet. So catch that coming up on a future episode. But for now, we're going to talk about Bodhi because in their running prep, we get another mention of how Bodhi's stride is so close to Zayden's that she has to do a double take. I am getting so, Lex, I am getting so paranoid about all of these Bodhi looks like Zayden. Bodhi is Zayden, you know, like just like all these parallels between Bodhi and Zayden. And I will point out every single one of them. I'm not so much paranoid as I am excited about these in-your-face reminders that they're related and how it'll play out with the aristocracy later in the story. Or maybe our characters will need Ryerson blood to help cure Zayden. I, I doubt it. Like I'm just throwing ideas like a spaghetti at the wall right now. But love how he appreciates what Imogen and Violet are doing on this run. And he makes Ree give them space. You know, my heart hurts for Ree, But in this particular moment, Violet and Imogen really do need to do this for 
for their trauma. And Bodhi, he knows it. So he's fully supportive. This is just the unhinged theory episode. And I don't know what to do, but I love it so much. And we're not done yet, folks. Let's go to Battle Brief. I just love Devera, how she flashes a proud smile at Violet. I, you know, I bet she knows or at least assumes what they actually went through at Resin. And of course, we learn later on that she has been sympathetic for the revolution, but she's been kind of waiting for her opportunity to switch sides. God, I love Devera. I cannot wait to talk about her more. I also love being in Violet's head during this scene. And this is another one of those moments where it's like, wow, we really get just how much Violet's world has turned upside down. We've mentioned this a few times in this episode, and I'm here going to mention it again. A lot of people give Violet a lot of flack or feeling like they're she's annoying or whatever in this book. And I personally, and I know Lexi's on the same page with me, could not disagree more. It's like saying Harry Potter is like a whiny little brat in Order of the Phoenix. All he wants to do is play sports and date girls or whatever, and he has the weight of the entirety of the wizarding world on his shoulders. But it's so fucking earned all of his sadness and anxiety. And I'm going to equate that to Violet here. She has literally used facts that she learned in the archives to steady her in her anxiety-filled moments. And now she doesn't even know what is true and what is not. Meaning her gravity, and we're going to get to that in a moment, is literally being flipped upside down on its head. So hearing her question everything that Markham has said and speculating the motives behind his words. For instance, Markham states that the flyers were burned on site and also note that he calls them flyers while everyone else in Navarre leadership calls them writers like Devera. That was interesting. Violet thinks, quote, hard for prisoners to talk about the venom they've been fighting if they're dead. She's just constantly questioning every single thing as the double meaning that it could possibly be. And like, ouch, that would hurt my head. Poor Violet. Also, Markham's a fucking snake. I love the moment where Ree asks a simple question and he way over explains the answer. And Devera even says, quote, we usually don't give you the answers. And he's like, oh, sorry, Professor Devera, I am not sleeping well. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, my God, it's such a moment there. I've. This is a weird thing to pull in, but I listened to a few podcasts about like lie detecting and uh, CIA agents talking about how to read like body language and stuff like that. It's really cool. Is there something you need to tell me? Nicole? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like suddenly no. very scared for Thanksgiving tomorrow. <laughs> no. What you don't know won't hurt you. But <laughs> over explaining is a huge telltale sign of lying. And I do find it funny that Markham, this like crafter, this master m- manipulator, just like slips here and Devera knows it in this moment. So Nicole, I have a question for you. Do you think that Markham knows that Violet knows? I think he suspects. I don't think he he has been talked to by Atos, but I think he suspects just by putting two and two together, knowing how intelligent Violet is, knowing that she went to Athbean for her war games assignment. I think that he would be an idiot, and he's not, if he didn't start putting two and two together as a possibility. So I don't think he has it confirmed, but I think he's wanting to get it confirmed in this battle brief. Interesting you say that. Yep, because Violet certainly speculates, and I have to wonder with the way that he gives her a, quote, anything but friendly smile. Markham also gives Violet the opportunity to speak, which is honestly a bit of a risk on his end after giving her the mic, so to speak, to share. Unless he knows that Violet is too smart and will navigate around the truth. And like you just said, that also might be an opportunity for him to pick up on how she's navigating this so that it can give him better feedback on 
what she really knows and what she might not. In our fourth wing deep dives, we had some back and forth trying to know whether all of these attacks were indeed from griffins or if they were venom. Based on what we learned here in Battle Breathe, I think that most of the attacks are griffin drifts, like I originally thought in the, our episode deep dives. But there are definitely some venom ones too, based on how much is redacted, as Violet guesses in the final chapters of Fourth Wing Book. And that we've learned here in a little bit that someone is killed for asking about an attack that never even exists. I think that was absolutely a venom attack. So I think that most of them are indeed griffin attacks. However, there are certainly some venom attacks here as well. 100%. After Battle Brief, Rhee is talking to Violet and has a speculation about Nolan. I about died when reading this for the first time. I was like, no way did she figure this out. Oh my God. This is, of course, before we get into the something's going on in the healer's quadrant. When she says, I think the school is hiding something from us. It, I was like, oh, she's figured it out. It sent chills down my spine. But it does make me wonder what type of mending is Nolan doing and how long has he been doing this? So again, pulling that chapter 65 epigraph, there is no cure, there's only control. We know that is an old missive. It is not about Jack. So what is he doing to Jack? Is he mending him? It's been almost six months. That is a long time for someone to be capital D dead. I don't think that he was ever dead. So that does make me wonder, to your point here, do you think he was on the precipice of dying? And that's why Naolin is basically having to mend someone back to life? It's definitely my understanding that he was never dead. I do believe that this whole resurrection thing, that is a Naolin specific thing that happened here. I Maybe we'll see it later on in the story. I certainly think so. But I do not think that is involved in this at all. How Jack didn't die from a tower falling on him when cadets die all the time falling off the gauntlet, the parapet, and off their dragons. Because he was already again, venom. He was maybe super strength. Right. And so that brings me back to this big question here. Why Jack of all people to take out of that rumble and mend his very, 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 very broken, almost very dead body? It would make sense that it would take a lot of effort for Nolan to mend him, venom or not, but maybe the process takes longer or it takes more effort because he is a venom. A quote, since when do a few broken bones recommend her? It's not just the broken bones. It's Nolan trying to cure or control or experiment here on a venom. He's trying to mend his soul in addition to his body and or his body is being mended but it's just more difficult to mend now which Brennan for instance he says like it's harder for him to mend himself versus just somebody else maybe that same thing applies to Venet where it's just harder to mend a Venet if he's ever tried I have a lot of questions around why specifically Jack I do think that it's because leadership knew he was a Venon and therefore they pulled him out of that rubble to then hush hush and that's why they mended him so that they, they could have him in a controlled environment well so here's a question that a lot of the internet is speculating when do you think that Jack turned Venon? On the mat. You think, okay, so you think that was the first time he channeled from the source? Yes, I do. Okay, I agree. I'm very much in that camp as well. Well, speaking of channeling from the source, let's talk about this assassin. So I knew this book was going to shock me. Did I expect it to shock me at the end of chapter nine? Nine. We had 66 chapters to look forward to in this book. Nine was the one where I was like, Oh my God, when the assassin snapped Nadine's neck. But here's my question. When do you think this assassin was hired? Such a good question. I'm going to guess after the parapet where he demonstrated what an evil bully he is. Or it could have been after he turned Venon after the parapet still and was under their control. 
Do you think he turned Venon on his own and then God fucking damn it, Dane's dad or Varish or whoever saw that he was Venon? Or do you think that he was turned Venon by leadership? And I'm going to get a little bit more into that in a moment, but I just want to ask that initial question. Like he was taught how to turn Venon by leadership. I have a hard time imagining someone to try to channel from the source. It's only been a few days between conscription day and assessment day. He is not bounded to a dragon. He has no access to power. Assessment day is the first time that they're even up against each other for him to have a survive or die kind of concept there to pull that power. So I'm starting to lean more towards leadership had a role in him turning that in there because they're all like in the big dormitories together. Like I don't see him just having an opportunity to experiment drawing source from the power there, but I do see that definitely being a possibility if leadership is involved. And I don't think they're forcing him by any means, but I do think they are I don't know, teaching him or there's something to that. I'll get into my answer in a second, but I'm similar. In the book, it says, quote, his eyes are a light brown, but rimmed in red as though he's on some kind of drug. Lex, I was so naive. I was like, yeah, absolutely. It's a drug. Assassin steroids. 100%. Idiot. Yeah. <laughs> in case you haven't picked up on this yet, this assassin is a venom. He's a venom? I know. You know, he's a lower level venom, but he, he is, is indeed venom. a venom. Yes. Fucking ridiculous. It is definitely on purpose that this assassin's eyes or would be assassin's eyes are described as red rimmed. And then the very next line is Atos. Atos fucking knew. So, so whatever you were speculating here about what leadership knew, what their influence was, that right there tells me Atos knows or played a part in him becoming a Venon. And of course, he sent this Venon after Violet as an assassination attempt. Atos is going to be our big bad. I'm pretty convinced that he's going to be our big bad character, not including the like Night King Venon, I'm going to call him. As much as we can say he's the big bad and he's this big puppeteer, he is also stupid enough to have emptied Athbane for war games. And <laughs> so I don't think we're playing like he's definitely not playing chess oh, here with anybody. <laughs> I'm going to take it one step further. He's a terrible assassin boss because yes! literally he's like sitting all of his people down, like all the infantry cadets, the second wing first year. He's like, okay, and right before they're dead, you're going to say secrets die with those who keep them. Like I'm shaking my head. It's just ridiculous that he was like, this is a good idea. I'm going to get him. <laughs> Here's one thing I will say that is venom aside. In the Zayden POV bonus chapter for chapter nine, we covered the sparring scene from Zayden's point of view. And I said how cool it was to read that scene from someone's point of view who really knows how to fight. And now we get to see this here from Violet and really see just how far Violet has come as she's going through the fight with the assassin and venom. I, I can't believe I just said that two months ago. I would have laughed at that sentence. That is ridiculous. Violet is always thinking one to two steps ahead of her moves. And sometimes it's so unconscious. It says even, quote, two daggers are in my hands before I even realize. She's also remembering moments from Zayden where, you know, the kidney move or stop going for bigger moves that expose you. It's showing how masterful she's becoming as a fighter, which is so cool to see. I love it. You know, it's crazy to think how far Violet has come with killing people since she quote unquote killed Jack last year. Even though Jack tried to kill her multiple times, she was so torn up over killing him. But after Resin and killing the Venom and seeing what she has over this past year, she doesn't second guess herself once here or wallow in sadness after killing him. No, like she literally just keeps on going with her day covered in his blood. She's 
she's losing some sense of her humanity here, just like Zayden said happens your second year. Real quickly, I actually am not, I have one more point here to make about the does leadership know about Venon or not? What if there's a secret code to leadership that when these aggressive dicks push someone off the parapet, they're like signaling that they want to be Venon? That's, it's, it might be a silly idea, but make no mistake, the fact that he and Jack are so similar and both turn Venon and are both under leadership's thumb ish with Jack, but mostly. It is not a coincidence. So maybe that's like a little signal like, hey, I want to be a Venice. I'm going to push this person off. I don't think that's the case, but I love this idea of like, okay, I'm going through the parapet. Do I want to become Venice? Do I not want to become Venice? You know what? Boop, let me just push this person off. And like, bye-bye. I've sealed my fate now. I agree. I think it's a lot more to do with the characteristics and that is what causes them to become a Venice. But you know, just, but there's just... definitely an overlap in that characteristic of someone who would push someone off the parapet and someone yes. who turns Venice. All right. I just need to get that off my chest. Now let's move on to Dane. Oh, God fucking damn it, Dane. Say something in a frantic whisper after she was just choked almost to death. This is the Dane we knew and loved to hate in fourth wing. Just... (laughs) You dumb idiot. She can't talk to you right now, so don't make her say something. Like, I get that he's worried for his best friend, but she has been so, like, literally, she was so clear with him on graduation day where she was like, touch me again and I'll cut off both your fucking hands. And here he is, like, coming up to her. And again, I understand he's like, oh, no, I just watched her almost die. And, like, that is a very scary thing to watch. But the fact that she is like, don't touch me. I'm glad he listened to her. And I hate that I even have to say I'm glad he listened to her. God fucking damn it, Dane. What do we think, however, about Mira getting targeted? So she was in the quadrant during the rebellion. And I'm assuming that assassination attempts were out to get her as retribution for what her mother was doing outside of Beskaya's walls as she fought against the rebellion. Or, of course, uh, my favorite theory is that Atos was behind it then, too, and he's been trying to kill off Sorengales for years. I definitely think that he killed Papa Sorengale. I love both of these options. I don't want to choose because they're both delicious. I won't. I will not choose. I'll go a step further. Maybe he's the one who tried to kill Brennan and Fen Ryerson was just the scapegoat. I don't know. I definitely think he killed Papa Sorengale. I do wonder if he was behind the Mira assassinations, although I do like the idea that the assassination attempts were because of the rebellion and what her mother was doing. But Colonel Atos is not a good guy here. So I just had to throw that out. He's an I dot and I can't wait to continue hating him. GFDDD. But let's talk about things we love, and that is Satan and Violet, part one. So I don't get me wrong, in romance, in romanticy, I love seeing that like sexual tension, the tense moments, the build up, the like the fight spats that turn into like moments of passion. But I did not know how much I absolutely would adore seeing these quiet moments with Zayden and Violet and just them having like a normal conversation. I remember what I was most looking forward to when Brett and I actually moved in together. He's the only boyfriend I ever moved in with. And I was like kind of nervous, you know, it was something new. But the thing I was most looking forward to were the quiet moments where Brett's off doing something and I'm off doing something else. And it's just pure calm and peace and I feel like this is the stage of the relationship that they're in and it just makes me so happy 
But I do wonder for you, what are your thoughts on the door warding maneuver? I know you're dying to answer this, so I'm just going to leave my response at, I know I called out Zayden's L's last episode, but oh man, oh man, is this wound worthy. I just love him so much, and I think it's, I love it. These are the moments, like last episode we were talking about him, like, you know, almost overly confident and invalidating her anger. I feel like he is now fully in the camp of, I am passionately trying to get you back. And those are two very different actions and very different energies. I love, 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 love him warning her door times a thousand. Don't get me wrong. I love a she's mine trope like a lot. But I think I love the I'm so secure that I'm going to give you every freedom to bring whoever you want into your room at night. I don't know if it tops it, but it's like. Oh, it tops it for me. Well, of course it does for you. For me, I'm like, tell me I'm yours. (laughs) But I do think it's neck and neck, if not still lower but it's really high up there and that's a high compliment so I love of course obviously his confirmation and this is what might make it equal to the she's mine trope the confirmation that his room is just for him and her is that a double standard yes I'm accepting it sorry and it is swoon worthy and I love it speaking of swooning Satan Ryerson writing letters was my undoing and I am literally at his mercy That's all I have to say. Except it's not. Recovered correspondence. It's time to address it. This is like blown up the internet. A lot of people caught this and they're, in my opinion, were very rightfully nervous about it. It is ominous. But I'm choosing to keep my head buried in the sand and pretending that this means absolutely nothing about their fate. Also, speaking of my head buried in the sand, one time Lexi and I were in Hawaii. (laughs) One time Lexi and I were in Hawaii and she buried me in the sand. Like, you know, I was her little sister. I was. I still am. Yeah, you were like like six and I was nine. Something along those lines. I think we were even younger because you were intelligent as a nine-year-old. I don't think you would have done this as a nine-year-old. I definitely would have. (laughs) Lexi's burying me in the sand and she buries like up to my like you know the top of my head so my ears are covered in the sand and I got the world's worst ear infection ever and I will still never let Lexi live that down so I'm gonna have my head buried in the sand in a way that does not give me an ear infection Lexi so back to this recovered correspondence when people are killed in this world their stuff is burned. So why would they have letters from Zayden to Violet? I don't see a scenario where both Zayden and Violet die. I can see a scenario where Zayden does die. I'm sorry. I do think it's possible. I do think he will be resurrected because at the end of the day, this is a romance story. And normally romance ends with a happily ever after or a happily ever after for now. But I strongly believe that Violet is alive no matter what and helping Jacinia write this book, aka the dedication at the very beginning of fourth wing and iron flame so why would it be recovered if it's in violet's possession and violet is alive since this letter was given to violet it would be in her possession not zayden's am i trying to calm my own self down absolutely yes i'm gonna help calm you down here nicole and i hope that i can calm some listeners down here as well because i have a very different take on this and maybe i'm being too optimistic or i'm not thinking critically enough into this but i really and truly do not believe that the verbiage of recovered correspondence is a hint whatsoever at either 
either of our characters dying or that it's necessarily even ominous for our characters. For instance, if I found a box of high school letters in our parents' basement, which I'm sure that they exist down there, I would absolutely consider that recovered correspondence. Speaking of high school letters, by the way, fun fact about me. My handwriting is cursive and has been ever since high school when my ex-boyfriend and I had a bunch of drama and we wrote angry notes to pass in class to each other. And I didn't want anyone trying to peek at our drama. So I started writing in cursive to make it harder for wandering eyes to snoop. And I've been writing in cursive ever since. It's been like 15 years or so. I so did that's not a- know that. Oh my yeah, God. Yes. Back to the recovered correspondence. Recovered correspondence literally means correspondence that you get possession of again, that is now back in your possession. One of our listeners wrote in to us, and I'm so sorry, I don't have it here in front of me, so I'm going off of memory, but letters like this of important people, they can be archived and cataloged, and we have archives right here. So I could absolutely see this correspondence, you know, somehow finding their way into the archives, and that would literally be considered recovered correspondence. So again, I'm not worried about this. I don't want to say don't worry about this, folks, because at the end of the day, what the hell? do I know? But I'm not nearly as hung up on this wording as I am with other epigraph language. And I do not think that this is a telltale sign that our two characters here die or even that one of them does. I think it's just language that they had been writing to each other, that this is considered past tense. And that now as our story comes to light, as Jasenia is bringing it to the forefront here, that it's just how it's worded. That's all I can say. That does calm me down. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm glad. <laughs> now there's this moment where Jacinia comes into the writer's quadrant, which uh, first and foremost, we already know that Jacinia coming into the writer's quadrant would be a big deal. But she is asking for help translating a book for one of the projects she's working on. She also gives Violet the gift of the first six as her, you know, research project, heavy, heavy air quotes there. But Violet translates this and it's describing an ancient king who lived Thousands of years before Navarre existed. How did I miss this on a first read? Secondly, this cannot be a throwaway line. So here's my theories. What if this ancient king, what if he was the first Venon? And what if he's like the Night King Venon? You know, like the like OG Maven Venon that I'm assuming still alive. I'm freaking out. (laughs) I don't know, but this made my ears perk up so much too. Oh my gosh. The second year from Third Wing, getting dragged from the academic building between the two older writers, followed by Professor Markham. Whoo! Later, we learned that he's actually killed. He's beaten to death for looking for an account of a border attack that his family was killed in, but there's no records of it. I'm going to guess, like I said earlier, that this attack was indeed venom because of how hush-hush it is. My heart just goes out to Jacenia, who accidentally got this guy killed. And it shows just how naive she is in all of this. And it's really an eye-opener to her about what's going on. And I have a feeling that when she learns he was killed, she starts leaning towards the revolution side that she ultimately winds up on. Absolutely. 100%. Re is the best. Re is the best. She gets every single W she deserves in this stretch of chapters. I have a thousand and one moments that I love from Re, but I think that this might be Number one, when she and Violet are talking about Zayden and, you know, Violet's obviously having to choose her words very carefully. And she says, he lied to me. And she's like, he lied to you? Was it another woman? And she literally says, quote, because I will absolutely help you annihilate that shadow wielding asshole if you guys were exclusive. And he, 
And then she's like, no, 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 no. But what a friendship duo. Who has not had this conversation around an ex with their best friend? You, Lexi, you are a unicorn. You're very rational and sympathetic. I think I can remember one time where you even slightly leaned this way versus I promise blood if anyone does this to my friends. <laughs> you and our cousin Allison, remember before I met my husband when the Italian stallion shattered my heart into a million pieces when I walked in on him having sex with another girl? Yes, that actually happened to me. And you and Allison almost hunted him down and chopped his balls off. And I had to like stop you guys, literally. Like she almost flew out here from across the country. <laughs> I'm still mad I didn't get the opportunity to do that. And you know what? It's never too late. <laughs> I do have a question because we learn in Mira's letter that she got reassigned to Athbean. And this kind of stood out to me. And again, I don't really know a whole lot about the military, but why is she getting reassigned so much? Because she then later gets, not that much later, gets reassigned to Samara. Is this normal? So I I wondered that too. I'm assuming that Mira in particular gets reassigned often because her signet power is the ability to extend wards. However, Athbane is beyond the wards. So I'm not sure how that factors in. We know that Samara has stronger wards than Montserrat. So I'm not sure how exactly that plays in, but I'm sure that her signet power has her moving around more frequently than others. I want to know what is being redacted. It, it can't be much about the venom because Mira later, she shuts down that conversation with Violet in an I don't believe you way, you know, when they're at Samara later on. So is this maybe be redactions about all the carnage at Resin and they just don't want to draw attention to how the city was like leveled and burned and all of that? I, Because remember, there were a bunch of wyvern that had to be burned. I, I don't know how that plays in, but what is being redacted? Well, I also wonder what if they just like redacted paragraphs just to fuck with her, like just <gasps> to show her how powerless she is. That would be a way to fuck with her. That, like like Violet in particular, yes. I could totally see that. Well, speaking of the person who's probably redacting it, or at least under the guy who's probably redacting it, let's talk about Varish and if he is Venon or not. Lines like this are so very Rebecca Yaros either dropping hints or just absolutely fucking with us. Quote, and the major must be inhuman because there's not a dot of sweat on his high forehead. Now, as I mentioned earlier, his dragon is one of the ones whose breath is described as decaying. And Lucille's library, I think does, at least I believe so in her video, does mention that she is on the Varish's Venom train. So maybe Varish's Venom? I don't know. I'm so torn. I think when I wrote this, I was like, absolutely not. And now I'm like, maybe, but I'm going to be really looking for lines like this that would give us venom clues throughout this deep dive of this book to change my mind. Also, I'll start by saying this is only part one of our conversation about whether Varish is a venom. We are absolutely, this is going to be a common theme for us, both for him and other characters throughout our podcast here. I'm currently, in my reread right now, I'm currently leaning into the Varish was a venom camp because Violet ultimately kills him with an alloy hilted dagger, which is notably the only kind of weapon that can kill a venom. However, I also firmly believe that Varish wouldn't just turn a little bit venom and then stop drawing from the source. His character would be addicted to that kind of power. So how would he have hid being a venom? Sure, we have varying levels of venom, and at the lowest level, venoms are red eyes. They can't be indistinguishable. Does leadership have a way of hiding these telltale signs of venom? And there's a lot more venom like lurking among leadership than we even think. Right? Well, well, hold on, really quickly, because yes. Jack is at the very end. He's like, "Are you here with my dose?" 
So I wonder if the dose is to make him not look venom. So let me get to this next part here because that might have something to do with this here too. Varish's life is slash was dependent on Solas staying alive like a normal, not Jack the Venom Dragon's writer's bond would be. Taryn threatens Solas's life in one of the most badass upcoming parts of this whole book. I can't wait to talk about all of that and cheer Taryn on. However, Taryn does this to stop Varish from punishing Violet again and Varish only concedes because his life literally depends on Solas not being killed killed by Taryn in this very moment. There are some potential workarounds with this theory, especially when we speculate how Jack fucking Barlow is still alive after he kills his own dragon Bade. For instance, what you were just saying there, Nicole, is he taking the serum to stay alive because he might be taking the serum to essentially repress a bond that means that he's no longer tethered to Bade. We'll get into all of these speculations at a different time here, but I just needed to point out Varish's dependency on Solus living and how notable that is. God, God damn it. I love this book. Oh my God. This is another incredible thing that I did not catch on my first read and blew my mind on the second. This feather tail book of research is going to be the absolute death of me. I swear to God. There is no way that we are getting mentions of Papa Soringale's feather tail research in both books and it not be incredibly important. And here's a part that just like yeah, kills me. There have been a lot of speculations about what the heck it could be, not to mention where the heck it could be. Now, some say it holds the cure to venonification or whatever, like feather tails somehow cure venom. Some say that he cracked the code of the seventh den. What if he's, like I mentioned earlier, a descendant of the first dragon rider seventh den thing? Varish says it's ironic that Violet bonded a feather tail after her father did research on feather tails. Violet corrects him that it's coincidental. And then he he says, is it? And she goes to Taryn and, and Darna. She's like, is it? And Taryn <laughs> says, quote, I know nothing of your father's research. Taryn promises. But Andarna has gone silent. This has got to do with something of the seventh den. And there's no way it doesn't. I am freaking out. This shit will keep me up at night. Thank you. I'm done. That's my TED talk. <sighs> I'm still gathering my thoughts with all of this. And we will absolutely be talking more about it throughout this deep dive. But for right now, of course, we got to talk more about it. So, okay. So Taryn doesn't know about Andarna being the seventh breed of dragon. But the elders do, which we can assume includes Coda. But that's a different subject for now. Andarna has waited 650 years to hatch, and during Violet's 18th summer, she heard the elders, again presumably including Coda, talk of the weakling girl forecasted to become the head of the scribes, who would have the heart of a writer. Now, Violet's dad died when she was about 19, so within a year after Andarna hatched. Now, that is also when he was doing his research on feather tails because it was towards the end of his life. Ooh, I'm getting chills even just talking about this. I do not know how. I have absolutely no idea how. Don't ask me. But Andarna and Papa Sorengale had to have a connection some way, somehow, and maybe even be in communication. She knew about the general and her daughter. If Andarna knew about the general and her daughter, she probably knew about the dad. How did she get in touch with him and help him? I don't know. Like I said. But this is such a rabbit hole, and I'm going to like just pull myself out right now, kicking and screaming. But friends, please do send your Andarna and Papa Sorengale research series, because we're going to be talking about this so much, and I just want to hear all of them, because, oh my God, I'm so excited. So you think that Papa Sorengale and Andarna were somehow, were, or like that's how he was getting his research on Feather Tales was through Andarna? I don't know necessarily if that's how he was getting his research. However, I do believe that in the year after she hatched and before he died, they had some kind of, I'll call it communication. 
And there is some link between the two of them. And that is what is emphasizing his research on feather tails. Now, I don't know if he's doing the research because of Andarna or if Andarna is part of that research. You know, I don't, whichever one came first, but I'm calling the correlation right here, right now. Well, that's what brings me back to is Papa Sorengale a descendant of the seventh dragon rider of the seventh den? Like I am cemented convinced that that is the case oh my god there's another line it's actually from mama sorengale when she says that sorengales are writers and some people are like well papa sorengale wasn't a writer and we do know that papa sorengale and mama sorengale obviously did have the last the same last name now this could this is a very modern world uh, Papa Sorengale could have taken Mama Sorengale's last name, but when later Violet is talking about how Brennan took Acerai, he distanced himself not only from mom, but also from dad. So we don't have confirmation that it is a Papa Sorengale native last name or a Mama Sorengale last name, but no matter what, ah! <laughs> Now, okay, I'm going to also bring it back to something I mentioned in our fourth wing deep dives, and that is, where is Papa Sorengale's research? I, I don't know why I am convinced it is in the veil, but this cements it from it is in the veil because if he was working with Andarna or if he was studying Andarna in some way, she would have been in the veil. I think it's in the veil. I'm calling it. I was extreme. Like, I, this book surprised me in a lot of ways. One of the bigger ways that it surprised me was that we never even got a hint of where this research was, especially when there is so much emphasis on the archives and Violet trying to recover information and things like that. And it was never mentioned. It, it definitely has something to do with the seventh den because we're, if we're going to get it next book, which I'm assuming we are, or I hope not book four, but I'm assuming next book because next book I'm assuming is seventh den 101. And and if it is, then it would make sense that we get Papa Sorengale's research in that book over Iron Flame. Yes. Ah! Yes. I, anyway, yeah. I was like, maybe it's in the vaults. I don't know. But maybe it is. I never thought that it would be in the veil because I really don't think that anybody's been there. But what do I know? What do I know? You know a lot. Don't give yourself that. You know a lot. You are a very intelligent cookie. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Speaking of not so intelligent <laughs> cookies, though, let's talk about Bodhi. I love Bodhi. I love my guy, Bodhi. But him just dropping Catriona's name was so stupid. Boy, oh boy, will we get to know this individual later on. And fun fact, her name is the Scottish slash Irish version of Catherine, but it originates from Greek, meaning pure, which I just like LOL'd at. I thought that was freaking hilarious. Also, the second I heard her name, I was like, well... Fuck, that is the Griffin writer's sister. I like that person who I replied to a comment and did a video on. It blew up a lot more than I thought it would. And I got some hate on the internet. And Lexi was really mad at me for doing reply to comment videos. And I wasn't allowed to do them for a while after. <laughs> but the fact that is actually almost accurate kills me. So funny. And so many people have now gone back to that video and been like, LOL, I'm reading this or I'm watching this after reading Iron Flame and this person was on the money. Yeah, they were. I'm sorry you got so much hate on the internet person's comment. I'm sorry I was the vessel for that too. So It's so much fun to laugh at Bodhi just a little bit here because he's such a younger cousin who just outed his older cousin and was like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, he's going to beat me up. Which, totally side note here, Bodhi has had to evade assassination attempts twice in the bathing chamber. Like he killed one out of second wing while naked and he only got a bruise. I can tell totally picture this fight and I can't help but laugh and like be turned on a little bit at the same time. And also important to note, the first year Venon was also in second wing. I don't know if that's a coincidence, but something to point out there. 
Well, let me hop on my high horse for a second and go down my own TikTok rabbit hole. So we were tagged in Nicole, who is at always go for Nicole. Love your handle. That's amazing. On TikTok. And she had an incredible catch. So she also caught the fact that the first year has a second wing patch. This is the first year who assassinated Violet. Bodhi also admits, like you just mentioned, some asshole out of second wing who jumped him in the shower. Are they doing something to the people in second wing? So earlier we mentioned, is leadership turning that assassin Venon? Now it's considering the fact that they're both in second wing. We obviously do not know if the guy who jumped Bodhi in the shower is a Venon. I'm assuming he most likely is just because that's headcanon in me for the story. But the fact that both of these assassination attempts are people from second wing does make me think that there is something special happening in second wing. Nicole also mentions that Re later says, and I, I love this little twist. Re later says, quote, I swear the guys in second wing got hotter after war games. This could very well mean nothing and just kind of be like pulling, you know, something out of, out of second wing. But I love this idea that if leadership is doing something to like beef up an assassin test, the second wing people that they're also just somehow getting hotter as they turn venom. I love that idea. That's so funny to me. But maybe Second Wing is their trial for venification. And that like that catch was like, oh my God, I think that is cemented in my head now. Thank you, Nicole, for convincing me. That is interesting. Now, I will point out, however, that Jack was in First Wing, so he was not in Second Wing. Aura, I've kind of had an eye on her, especially because she stays back at Buscaya. She accuses Dane and all of them of lying about the Venom being real and all of that at the end of Chapter 36. She is the senior wing leader of Second Wing. Now, Second Wing also won war games, too. They're known as being pretty aggressive and and all of that, so well, we will keep an eye on that as we continue moving forward in our story here. Well, I do also, I want to point out one other thing, because later it is, or this is my spinoff on this theory, later it is Infantry, obviously, who yes. jumps Violet and Aya in the tower. What if leadership did their, you know, tests or whatever on Second Wing, and then they started moving into Infantry cadets? So actually, I am very much of the mind that those Infantry soldiers are not Venon. Really? Interesting. Yes. And when we get to that point, I will explain point by point why I believe that. But I am guaranteed that they are not Venon. I'm not there with you yet, but I haven't heard your point by point. So we'll save that debate for another episode. (laughs) Before we move to Samara, I just have a really quick question. Who put the smuggled weapons on Violet's saddle? Because I'm assuming that Taryn... Yeah, but like Taryn doesn't let anybody get near him and touching him. So I'm assuming that he just let Bodhi... Uh, for this one particular mission, let him do that. Or See, for this I particular think, situation. I think Bodhi attached it to his saddle because we know that Taryn can get in his saddle on his own. So yeah. I'm assuming Bodhi attached it to the saddle on the ground and then Taryn like shimmied his way into his saddle. I thought Taryn did that in the veil though. But then how did Zayden get him, give him his saddle? I don't know. Or maybe Taryn like picked him up from Bodhi in his claws, took him to the veil, put them down. Wait, but then how did he attach him to the saddle? I don't know. Just a little catch that I had there. Okay, now let's move on to Samara. We are going to talk a lot more about this outpost in today's archives, but I want to take a quick moment and share the rough sizes of the infantry, companies, platoons, etc. because Violet does describe these military groups during her time here and throughout the story. So let's just all be on even ground here. According to the U.S. Department of Defense, a squad is around 10 soldiers. A platoon is made up of two to three squads, so that's approximately 36 soldiers, and a 
company is three to four platoons. So that's up to 200 soldiers. Now, if Navarre is similar, which I'm guessing it is, there are about 400 infantry soldiers here at Samara. That seems insane. But hey, we know that it is a bigger fortress. It is twice as big as Montserrat and Athbane. So that's good to know for us just having those sizes in mind as Violet is doing her narration. We do so much book math in this episode. It is amazing. (laughs) I love it. We also get another example. And I know we've talked about this before, and we will certainly be talking about it continuing throughout the book, how much Violet's trauma from Resin is ever present. She suffers from PTSD, and it really does show in these moments when she feels the familiarity of Athbane and immediately goes back to that scenario. And she has to remind herself that she's not there, that this place is empty for a completely different reason, that she is as safe as it can be. It's that showing, not telling you about her PTSD. I have a weird Samara question, and that is when Violet enters, she notices that there's a guy guy in a cage sitting several stories above her and Violet says well all right then what the fuck Samara here's my questions is this to show how cruel of a place this is what is this guy in the cage about like it's 8 a.m so we're assuming he's been in there all night is this hazing I don't think so no I really took it's part of the defensive position for on guard and it might be like weird language being in a cage but I feel like this is something that would absolutely happen at Castle Black or somewhere like like I didn't think anything of it where it's like oh like that's just part of the defensive position there Oh, I 100% was like, this guy's in the break. I also want to point out for anyone who's watched Gilmore Girls, I absolutely only saw Kirk in a box, if you know, you know. And that just ruined that image for me forever. So I do not think it was a defensive position. I think it was some form of like punishment or whatever. Because I mean, Samara- Where is your your mind in this episode? My goodness. (laughs) My mind is in a guy who's in a cage hanging two stories above her. That's Yeah, a defensive position. He's in a cage. That feels- pretty locked away to me (laughs) but he's a guard who's been on duty i could not disagree with you more here i can't even believe we're having this conversation let's move on to the fighting pits so when i was first reading this i immediately my mind went to brienne of tarth in game of thrones and i thought it was going to be zayden fighting some like impossible enemy and they were picking on him because of his last name you know he was in violet's room and he was like it's annoying that like i feel like i have to prove myself over and over again Thank God I was wrong. George R. R. Martin has made my mind a dark place, apparently. But I was for sure convinced that she was going to walk in on Zayden being just like absolutely hazed, tormented, whatever. Again, thank God I was wrong. All I could think of was Fight Club. Nicole, have you seen the movie Fight Club? Yeah, I have. Okay, well, you haven't seen most other things, so I wasn't <laughs> sure. Um, and, you know, it's not fantasy. Like, it was, you have to watch I just admitted to watching Gilmore Girls. Gilmore Girls is my go-to, like, comfort TV show. Everything else is fantasy, though. You are correct. <laughs> but, yeah, so all I could think of was Fight Club. And something like this happening at an outpost among writers just makes so much sense to me. Like, of course this would be happening. When Violet questions whether this makes them turn against each other, and, you know, the writer standing next to her, she blocks and she's like, no, like, this is just innocent. Like, Writers are fucking badass. Like, if this is just like an innocent, oh no, there's just a fist fight. And speaking of badass writers, whew, Zayden Ryerson, my guy. Oh man. I do wonder what this girl, we learn her name is Coralina Sahali and Mira fight over. What did they fight over to land her a thumbprint sized scar on her jaw? So it's described that she looks a few years older than Violet. So she's got to be right around Mira's age. 
I'm assuming that she got this scar in the quadrant during a challenge with Mira or maybe after in a fight, you know, when they're at an outpost. But my guess is definitely in a challenge when they were in the that, quadrant together. That would make 100% sense to me. Lexi, it is time for intrinsic moment or bond moment. This will be a theme. And guess what? This has nothing to do with italics. Quote, I'm so damn in love with him that it hurts. And for the moment, I can't remember why I'm denying myself. Right after she has this inner monologue, I'm so damn in love with him. A writer next to her shouts and Zayden's gaze jerks upward, colliding with hers. Quote, surprise registers on his features for all of a heartbeat. I personally think that this is 100% an intrinsic moment. The fact that when they are alone, just a few pages later, he says, quote, what are you thinking? Because I can read a lot from the way you're looking at me, but I'm going to need the words, meaning I love you. He heard her say, I love him in her head, and he's trying to get her to admit it out loud. Also, the fact that she says, I love him, and his gaze jerks upward, I don't think that was an accident. So I 100% think this is an intrinsic moment. I think you're right on that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> At this point, I'm just going to agree with you on anything at intrinsic because I have a big egg on my face that I'm still wiping off. <laughs> I have a good track record with intrinsic calls out. Thank you. God fucking damn it. Rebecca Yaros can write romance. Like, Oh my God, this scene did things to me. The build up to any romantic moment is my fucking favorite and this one is perfection I love the like a moth to a damned flame and then Zayden says this is in their uh, mind to mind bond quote I'm more than willing to let you burn me now she's saying I'm a moth to you being the flame and he heard it as the opposite it took me longer than I'd like to admit to understand this it took me on like my fourth reread I know I'm whatever but I love this idea of him you know them kissing and all this stuff and him thinking she's like like a moth to a flame bitch like I love this idea of her like almost kind of insulting him and he's like yeah sure I that's true I just I think it's kind of funny but it's another burn reference and there's a lot in this book so so many in this book. And of course, the tagline is burn it down. So any of those little burn moments that are notable, I am going to be calling them out. And this is one of them. I said this in the fourth wing deep dive that the kiss scene in the snow was my favorite kiss scene I've ever read. But nope, this one takes the lead. Oh my God, it was delicious. It was perfect. I have no notes. 10 out of 10. Uh, I just, home. He tastes like home. Just one ah! of those little lines that we can instantly understand and it sucks us into the moment. Hit. <laughs> sucks us in, right? Hey. So I was listening to this part of Iron Flame with Brett while we were cleaning the kitchen one night. And we get to this line, quote, you have no idea how badly I want to peel those pants off your amazing ass and fuck you until your horse from screaming my name so limp from orgasms that you can't even fathom leave, <laughs> leaving my bed ever again. And every tree around here goes up in flames from lightning strikes. <laughs> and I look over at him and he's like, frozen like watching the dishes and his eyes are like bulging out of his head and I looked over and I'm like I think he just fell in love with Zayden Ryerson in that moment but it's so this line is so extra because it keeps going it, it just, just keeps going stops. 
I'm here for it. It killed me. I thought that was so funny. You know, their long distance relationship and their rebuilding of trust with one another while also trying to work through their own issues, I think it's really well navigated here. Do Zayden and Violet sometimes get annoying in this book? Yes. Like I said last episode, they're young 20-something-year-olds in love and figuring out how to make it work without having the faintest idea how. It's not always going to be a walk in the park for us as readers, but it's important for their journey to learn how to trust each other in a way that fulfills the other. That is so key, and that is really what they're trying to do here, learn how to trust each other in a way that fulfills the other. Now, moving on to stuff that I love talking about here. We will do a full archives of Alloy and Wards, and I'll go into way deeper explanation of Zayden and Violet's conversation here in Samara, but here are the basic takeaways for this informative exchange. The metal in the hilt of these daggers is the alloy. It's a specific blend of materials smelted in, and it holds power, but it is not power in and of itself. These medallions, which is that metal in the hilt, they hold the extra power that boosts the wards and extend them. The more of this alloy material, the stronger the wards. Now, here is where we learn the why the wards can falter. This was a big question mark for us in fourth wing that we speculated a lot over. This alloy can only hold so much power, and once it's used, like for powering the wards, it has to be imbued again. Now, you might ask, what does imbuing mean? It's the process of transferring power into an object, and it's not a common skill among writers. So the wards around these outposts and these borders naturally falter, no matter how well-powered they are, because they're already extended to their max at these outposts. A great analogy here is that the wards, they start running low on power, and they need to be recharged. I can't wait for that archive section. I'm so excited. Before we move into foreshadowing, we are going to start our gravity mention count. We get two mentions of gravity of some form or fashion in this stretch of chapters. Number one is right after learning that God fucking damn it, Kieran is dead. Quote, gravity, logic, whatever it is keeps me grounded shifts. There is no way it was intentional, is there? And then the second one is during the kiss scene in Samara. Quote, he's gravity pulling me back to him by the force of his existence. It is very notable that a moment where she is challenging her thought process, where it feels like she is out of control, gravity goes away. And it is important in a moment where she is with Zayden and, you know, their love and they're being home together, that gravity comes back in. He's gravity pulling me back. I'm going to Keep an eye out for if that is the same throughout the rest of the gravity mentions in this book. But I love that opposition here is really at play. Lexi, let's move into foreshadowing for this stretch of chapters. You'd think that not a whole lot happens in chapters 7 through 12. But don't worry, we always can make a big episode out of nothing. <laughs> There's so many foreshadowings. I just looked in the outline. I think it doubled since last night. Whoops. First one, Nadine saying, quote, Nolan might have an opening for me before Parapet. He's been run ragged since war games. Yes, indeed. Fixing Jack fucking Barlow. We talked about this earlier in the episode. But speaking of Jack fucking Barlow, we get our first Caroline Ashton mention in RSC and then again in Battle Brief where she gives the stupid fucking idea about doubling forces. Flashbacks, however, to Lilith's desk missive in Fourth Wing. The second missive was all about her increasing forces in 
in Tyrandor to settle unrest. So that was an interesting little parallel. So Caroline Ashton is close to Jack fucking Barlow. Were they an item last year or were they just good friends and squad mates? We know that she's in first squad just like Jack fucking Barlow. But she is also the one who Markham later asks to go fetch Jack fucking Barlow when he needs to discredit, deflect, and distract after the poor meal pamphlets are let loose in Battle Brief. Yeah, this girl is definitely on our radar. You can't trust her at all. Remember, she was an unbonded after threshing last year, but then she bonded with Glean after his rider fell during flight class. And Jack had said, I knew it would work, which makes us think that they definitely caused the rider to fall, whether it's from poison or something to that effect there. I totally forgot that was her. In this same sequence, quote, a chill races down my spine as I remember how close she had been to Jack Barlow, the rider who had been intent on killing me until I killed him instead, unquote. This is Rebecca's way of priming us for his return later on in chapter 25. Ugh, God. Next, quote, if training to be a scribe taught me anything, it was patience. While this may not be foreshadowing per se, this line is very notable for Violet and her character because we see her patience twice in this book in combat when the enemy is rushing forward towards her, but she has to wait until the moment to strike. Jasenia is first in her year, which makes Violet reflect that she's probably training for the adept path, which is the hardest of all degrees for scribes and the one that is necessary to become curator. Hey, she does become curator at the end of our story here. Or you know, at some point. <laughs> and then another with Jasenia, when she smiles at Violet's lie about researching the wards for a debate class, we later learn that she knew right then and there that Violet was lying and that she chose to help her friend anyway. The book of tearish knots that Zayden left for Violet on her desk. This is the start of weaving runes for our girl Violet. Plus, Zayden says, quote, I thought you might want a piece of tearish culture, possibly foreshadowing if the book does end with him as the Duke of Tyrandor, or at least the Duke of Erasia and Violet and him are in game together she will be the Duchess of Tyrandor so tearish culture indeed and then Violet recalls the memory of Jack forcing pure energy into her rattling her bones at the time we thought that this was his signet we spent a lot of time talking about how this was a signet back then but we learned later in this book that this moment was actually the moment that he turned venom great callback that sets us up for the big reveal later we learned that Arik's older brother died in the writer's quadrant in fourth wing and in Violet's inner monologue in the stretch of chapters she reminds us readers of that again well Yes, he did die at Zayden's hands because during threshing, the older brother did go after Garrick and Zayden says, no, sir, and murdered him. <laughs> Good stuff, Zayden. <laughs> So who would have thought that Riddick got this right? Nolan keeps healing them as Barish breaks them. That's exactly what Nolan, that motherfucker, does to Violet when Barish does keep breaking her during interrogation at the end of this part one. Quote, I have zero aspirations to leadership. This is from Violet. Well, if you and Zayden are in game, like I just said, you will probably be the Duchess of Erasia. That's pretty leadershipy, possibly even of Tyrandor, which is even more leadershipy. However, I do have a prediction. What if her and Zayden are running Bezgaeth War College, obviously without maybe the harshness and, you know, Jacenia is the curator of the scribe quadrant. That would be another version of leadership. I'll say this. I don't see either of them, Violet and Zayden, wanting anything to do with staying at Bezgaeth after all of this. 
<laughs> I think they would rather be in Tyrandor for sure. I, think I would. I want to be in Arisha. Absolutely. Absolutely. When discussing who has it worse with their last name, Zayden says only within these borders is his name worse. True. Outside of Navarre's borders, Zayden has the kind of last name that people like Kat would quite literally kill for, and it is worth having betrothals made over. God fucking damn it, Kat. When in Violet's room, she recalls the memory of him saying her hair would bring him to his knees or win an argument. She will use this exact tactic later on in chapter 27 in the shower scene. And yes, I am excited to talk about it. From Violet, quote, jealousy is not exactly a rational emotion. Wait till you meet Catriona, my girl. <laughs> Jasenia asking Violet to translate old Lucherish and Violet recalling her and Dane using it to pass secret messages when they were kids. This is priming us for when they translate the diary in part two, which is indeed an old Lucherish. All of the mentions of power prickling along my veins or coursing through her. We will learn later that Violet is way more powerful than fuckface Carr ever led her to believe. This is a taste of seeing the power originating from her. Her, Violet, not from the sky. Next, in Samara, during their nightly routine, we get a quote. My gaze catches momentarily on a palm-sized gray stone with a decorative black rune on his nightstand, unquote. This is from Colonel Mari's rune that she gives every single marked one that gave them their rebellion relic when activated by Dragonfire. We will talk endlessly about this when we get to that part in part two. And then Alloy started getting placed specifically in daggers soon before the rebellion, probably because Melgren had a vision of, about how in an upcoming battle, these will be central to victory. I don't know, Nicole. I don't feel like we've seen such a battle yet where this has actually happened. I mean, yes, the daggers are very important, but we know that he couldn't see the rest in battle. I think that there is something way more here in play. And I am so, I just needed to pull that line out. And I don't know what it's foreshadowing, but it's foreshadowing something. So you think the upcoming battle that Melgren saw in Central ha to their victory has not happened yet? I say that right now. I do need to reread the whole ending of this book and see like where the daggers might play in. But that is my guess right now. I love it. I love it. Lexi, let's move on to the archives where we take a central theme of today's episode and Lexi does a big old deep dive research info dump for us to better understand these elements of our story. And today's archives topic is about Navarre outposts and what we know about them. So most of these outposts are built from the same plans, which I totally get for efficiency, but that really doesn't seem like a strategic plan for attacks. Yes. If Griffin, right? Like if Griffin flyers know their way around one outpost, they know their way around most outposts. These outposts are simple square fortresses. Some differ in sizes, but they're all a pretty good size. They have four towers and walls barely thick enough to launch a dragon. And these outposts are built for a siege. The infirmaries are off to the right of the entrance and barracks make up most of the southern side of these fortresses. Heavy black drapes are a standard issue for riders since they may have to fly during night patrol and they need dark rooms like my children. There is an office for scribes and they have a stable and a blacksmith for the infantry. How lovely. Now the lower levels of the outposts are where the armories are. Now in these armories are where the alloy weapons are. We'll do a separate archive section on alloy like I mentioned earlier, but for right now, they hold extra power to boost the wards and extend them. More material means stronger wards. Now, outposts are strategically placed, my understanding is where there's alloy, to keep the borders from developing weak points. 
However, there are outposts beyond the stretch of the wards and they don't naturally have alloy unless alloy daggers are put there because there might be venom nearby. And that's more for battle defense, not war powering. At least that's my understanding. Now, Tyrandor has the fewest outposts because of its natural barrier provided by the cliffs of Draylor, which griffins aren't supposed to be able to scale. And remember, all quadrants make up the military. So at these outposts that we have healers, scribes, infantry, and riders. Infantry, of course, has the highest numbers, and most outposts hold around 200 people, which includes that company of infantry, which I mentioned here earlier. Now, the number of dragons and riders can range depending on the outpost. Like in the eastern outpost, they have 12 riders. I believe they do at Athbane as well. The rotation goes like this. Three are out on patrol, three wait, and three are on call. And then the other six riders are resting. Now let's dive into the outposts that we know about so far in our story. We'll kick it off here with Samara. It is arguably considered the cruelest outpost, and it is as cut off from society as it gets. It is the easternmost outpost of the southern wing at the intersection of Krovla and Bravelik provinces in Pormiel. It is a day's flight from Biscayeth, and it is high in the Espen Mountains within two miles of that eastern border with Pormiel. It is surrounded by peaks with snowy mountains even in summer, Whew, winter's got to be harsh here. It has no trading post within walking distance, and the nearest village is a half-hour flight. Samara is also a really large fortress, and it is twice as big as other outposts that we know of. It has two companies of infantry and 18 dragons, and their riders are stationed here, which, again, two companies equal 400 infantry soldiers, so this place, it houses approximately 400 people here. And the wars are stronger here than at Montserrat, and there is a drift of griffins on the other side of the mountains, just like literally a mile away. And it's crazy that this is not considered a big deal. It's commonplace for gifs to be this close, which means, hey guys, this is the front. Within a few months, Samara is going to be attacked by griffins and Zayden does get hurt, but don't worry, he's mended. Vice Commandant Varish was reassigned from this outpost and pulled from an active wing here because prisoners kept dying under his interrogations. Because yes, let's instead have him oversee interrogation class at Beskyth. <laughs> That's such a terrible idea. Oh, anyway, all right, now let's move on to Montserrat. Hey, the weather is warmer here than at Basgaith, which is surprising because Basgaith gets real hot because of all the dragons there. This outpost is 200 miles from the coast, and it is usually one of the safest border outposts, which is why Second Squad went there last year. However, they obviously fell under attack, so there you go. The wards here are pretty strong, but like I said just a little while ago, they're not as strong as they are at Samara. They can, however, falter at Montserrat. I'm sure they can at any place, but we saw them firsthand falter at Montserrat last year. All right, now let's move on to Athbane. Athbane is a strategically invaluable outpost near the trading post of Resin, or what used to be Resin, which was a 20-minute walk along the wide gravel path down the mountainside. Now at Athbane, it is beyond the wards, and it is at the border of Krovla and Tirandor. This mountainside outpost really does seem like lovely scenery around here. It has a lake nearby. It's got these beautiful snow-capped mountains. Oh, I think my Colorado heart would absolutely love it here. Athbane is also where the exchange with poor meal takes place four times a year for meat and lumber from Navarre and cloth and agriculture from poor meal. Raids around Athbane spread the wing too thin last year and the major requested reinforcements to keep protecting Navarian lives. But again, it was attacked again this year. Now, while we don't know any specific coastal outposts, I do, of course, have to mention them because we learn a little bit about these coastal outposts in our story here. They are possibly more brutal than Samara because there's not much to do around there. And oh my gosh, they start turning on each other. They don't see much action because understandably, the attacks are along the poor meal borders, not the coast. 
For perspective, this is where pissed off General Sorengale sent Colonel Atos for his war games blunder. So that was like a punishment to send him to one of these outposts. Now let's talk a little bit about the Midland Posts. They are within the wards and considered as safe as military outposts can be. Riders stationed at these outposts are frequently called to the border outposts because of these attacks that are going on. And third years at Biscayeth are sent to man the Midland Posts while the active duty riders are out. Speaking of Midland Posts, El Tuval is the outpost that Dane and Fourth Wing went to for war games and where Zayden's missive at Athbane was supposed to redirect him if he had chosen to leave Resin. It is the northernmost of their assigned region which was the southeast, a.k.a. part of Tirandor. So we can guess that El Tuval is the northernmost part of the southeast of Tirandor. Just a few other outposts that we know of that are worth an honorable mention. Pelham, it's near the Signison border. And lastly, we have Keldalvi, which is along the Bravrick border, and it nearly fell this year. Whew, so that is what we know about Navarian outposts and the strategies behind them, about these fortresses and the military that reside in them. And it shouts to our dragon riders on Patreon who helped us pick this as today's archive section. We love you guys. If you want to become a dragon rider, go to the link in the show notes to become a Patreon member. Plug. So now let's take flight with our favorite moments of these stretch of chapters. I'm going to go first. In the archives, quote, and to think at one point in my life, I thought climbing these ladders would be the scariest thing I'd ever do. I love lines like this. And she also thinks, kind of missed the ladders. It's funny. But I love lines like this to really see how much Violet has changed and how much she has grown in the writer's quadrant. Violet fantasizing about shoving Dane off the tower on conscription day as they wait by the parapet. I just, I love all these little God fucking damn it Dane moments. <laughs> and then the way that Violet handles herself when Sloane very blatantly hates her. She is a loyal friend to Liam and she has to pivot tactics real quick with Sloane here to keep her alive. And she quotes, just do me a favor and put your fucking arms out so you don't see Liam before I do. I imagine how jarring this must be for her. And she does a great job with that pivot from sweet older sister to just don't fucking die. <laughs> well, speaking of that moment, when Sloane does cross the parapet. Violet whispers up to Liam, she made it. This also primes us as readers for seeing Liam and seeing her quite literally talk to Liam later on in this book. Quinn also trimming her curls with her daggers, which is fucking badass. It was such a small moment, but I was like, I love Quinn. I've always appreciated Violet's perspective on facing death, whatever her situation is in the moment. And I just love this line. I've danced with Malik more than my fair share over this past year and told him to fuck right off every single time. Taryn, I don't participate in parlor tricks. Taryn's the goat. And another one from Taryn. If Solus comes near you again, he knows I will devour his human hole and let him rot within me while his heart still beats. And then I'll take the eye I so graciously left him. Taryn, you should have followed through here, buddy. How many times does he threaten to eat a human in this book? It's a lot. I want to see him actually eat one. Come on, Taryn. You gotta follow through with your threats. He must at some point. I'm waiting for it in book three. Quote, disappointment stings like a paper cut. These moments where Violet is reading and she's really heavily leaning into her scribe mind. I love those similes that are very scribe. We also get a line from Imogen, quote, I didn't like you last year, remember? You're kind of an acquired taste. I love Imogen in Iron Flame. And then in that same scene, Imater, this is after Violet screams at Dane, don't touch me. She's walking back to her place and Imaterio says, may I touch you? And I just love that moment. Consent, my guy, Imaterio. Really 10 out of 10 moment for Imaterio. And then chapter 11's epigraph was Zayden writes about how Garrick is like his Dane, except trustworthy. 
It just gave me a good laugh. I love it. Imogen accusing Jasenia of wanting to try and kill Violet and then saying Violet knew how to kill just fine on a scribe's education. And Jasenia is just like horrified. <laughs> I love that moment. Quote, quite the necklace you have there. Violet then says, thank you. It was expensive. Cost someone their life. This is savage from Violet Soringale. I love it. It suddenly means a lot to Violet that Cornelia recognizes her as Lieutenant Soringale's sister, not the general's daughter or the cadet whose dragon is bonded to Zayden's dragon. It throws Violet off a little bit to be referred to as Mira's sister. And it's probably a little bit of relief because she looks up to her sister so much. And so I just, I love that little moment there. Another moment that I love in the same stretch is is when Zayden gives the other fighter the other 24 hours to the 48-hour pass. He may be morally gray, but it's moments like this that his goodness just really shines through. And I'm going to hop on my hopeless romantic high horse for a second. Honestly, all of chapter 12, where they are making out, that entire makeout scene is one of my favorite things on this planet. But this line in particular, this is from Zayden, quote, yes, whenever you want, because I'll live with my mouth attached to yours if I do it whenever I want. I love that from Zayden. Just everything in that scene. I love it also, again, he picks her up and like grabs her ass, has her straddle him as they're making out. He also mentions peeling his her pants off of her amazing ass. If we needed more opportunities to believe that this guy is an ass man, there you go. <laughs> Brings it right back. All right, folks, that's it for today's episode covering chapters 7 through 12 of Iron Flame. Next week's episode 3, we will be covering chapters 13 through 19. Quick thank you to our executive producer, Hayden. Thank you so much for all you do. You keep us sane. And hey, if you have not joined the Patreon party, but you want in on it, please take a look at our show notes. Go to the link. We have two tiers, cadets and dragon riders. We have a discord. We have live Q&As every month. We have access to our outlines. Woo, that's a crazy one. Early access to episodes. There is so much 20% discount on our merch stores. Please go take a look and thank you so, so, so very much for your Patreon support. Also, if you are not following us on Instagram and TikTok, what are you doing? Go ahead, give us a follow at Fantasy Fangirls Pod. Also, please do not forget to rate and review the show on whatever podcasting platform you are listening on. If you're watching us on YouTube, thank you so much. Please like and subscribe to our channel. And last but not least, friends, this is the best way you can support us, and that is by sharing this podcast with your fellow Iron Flame friends. We love how much you all have been screaming about the show from the rooftop. It is really just it warms our hearts so much so thank you thank you please keep it going all right we will see you next week with episode three bye everybody bye and now friends please enjoy some bloopers is this like a sneaky secret like i don't know what it is kind of because you wouldn't let me do it if you knew what it was right now that's all <laughs> Uh, it's a little <laughs> blow <dry check. laughs> You you went bye you went bye bye. <laughs> God damn it! I only lasted a chapter. <laughs> Since translating old Lucerus, a old Lucer Lucerus Lucerus. <laughs> because Violet ultimately kills him with an alloy hint hilted with an alloy hilted dagger. Oh my gosh! I can't speak. <laughs> it for today's episode two, chapter six. No, what's it? Chapter six. All right, seven. Thank seven. you. <laughs>